You can kick your fancy ales, you can take them by the flagon, but the only food for the raven too comes from the green dragon. Welcome to episode 18 of the Green Dragon Podcast. Jeremy here, and I'm just going to do the introduction and my month in Middle Earth before David and Matt show up to be with me for the rest of the episode. So on this episode, we're going to have our, my month in Middle Earth, of course, Jeremy's month in Middle Earth. Then David and Matt will come in and talk about the lore segment for Rohan. So we're excited about Rohan. Been very excited about Rohan at the moment. Then we're all going to do a bit of a review on the foreground building and terrain supplies, and then we're going to do a Shadow in the Past, Fellowship of the Ring Journey book. Following this is a Building Middle Earth on basing, an Entmoot for question and answers, and we finish off with our quick thoughts on locations of where we like to play our games, so game store or gaming club or at home. So, packed episode, hopefully you enjoy that. Onto my month in Middle Earth. This has been a busy month for me in real life, so my month in Middle-earth has been relatively sparse, but I have managed to do a few things. Firstly, I've been getting competition entries, and I'm so excited about this. Our AMA scenario competition has now closed. Next main episode, so the next episode that I put together, the, the longer one, will be essentially a compilation of all the scenario spotlights for the scenario entries. So each of the scenarios that we have been entered into the competition, I'll play through at least three times. It might be more if it's a short one. And I'm going to do a scenario spotlight on each of them. Then at the end of that, we'll be announcing the winner of the competition, so the person who gets the AMR model. Now, what I've got from people is that most people have said they really enjoyed just entering the competition. They had some serious fun putting this scenario together, which is exactly what we wanted. We wanted people to play their scenarios and try it out. So this makes me really happy. So hopefully we've got lots of winners, not just the people who actually created the best scenario, but the ones who all enjoyed it. I will be in that episode announcing our new competition. I'm going to do another one of these because I'm... It's like Christmas for me at the moment, getting these scenarios emailed to me because I love scenarios and it's fantastic. I'm really excited about it. Cannot wait to play through them. And I've actually got some modeling opportunities as well because some people have done some really clever things in the scenario. So really looking forward to that. So lots of entries. If I didn't respond to you, if I didn't say thank you very much for your entry, let me know because it probably means it's disappeared somewhere in a message or an email that I didn't quite get to it. So if I did not email you saying thank you for the scenario I can't wait to play it or thanks a lot or something like that let me know because I'll double check that I've got it because I do want to play through all the scenarios in terms of gaming doing a little bit of gaming actually I can't remember if it was this month or last month that I went through the last three fellowship of the ring scenarios I know I did a scenario spotlight on aim on hen on it so that one has already been covered. Worked through that with Nick, which are always good fun scenarios. And I've also played through the Scouring of the Westfold a few times, which is the one where the Urukai and Dunlin warriors are trying to burn down some Rohan buildings. It's a really fun scenario. So expect it on a scenario spotlight pretty soon because I do enjoy this scenario and I do want to talk about it because it's got some variation there. I had a gaming weekend just recently. Well, not a weekend. I had a gaming day just recently where we invited Nick 
and Hugh, his friend, and Hugh's brother-in-law, Ben, who have been over once before to play some games with us, and also Danny and David over. And we played through the Helm's Deep scenario, Defences Must Hold, which I've talked about in the Scenario Spotlight as well. And this is a fantastic scenario. We had such a good time. Basically, the good players thought they were losing the whole game, and it looked like they were. They were real trouble for most of the game. The the Urukai blew up the gateway really early. They sent a ladder through the gate, which I haven't seen happen before, and tried to, to invade the Hornberg that way. Legolas was the hero of this game. He turned around and shot down two Urukai with flames, trying to light the bombs. He also then shot down models as they were climbing the ladder up, the one that went through the gate up to the Hornberg. So he actually saved the Hornberg with his shots. The good side just won. They managed to hold three objectives, the Hornburg, the Courtyard, and the entranceway to the Courtyard. The evil side was really pushing them. The, the pivotal moment was the Urukai lit a bomb on a 6+. So the Urukai, just generic Urukai engineer, blew up a bomb. It killed a shaman. It killed some captains. It killed a whole bunch of stuff because the Urukai player, Nick, didn't expect that to happen. But it also blew up a huge amount of good plays, including Gimli. Now, the key point here was that Haldir actually survived. He took one wound from this bomb. Only one wound from the bomb. So he was able to hold with one elf friend the, the entrance to the courtyard, hold it off from the Urukai. If he died, there's no way one model would have been able to hold because the others would have run past and the evil would have taken the castle. So that was a fantastic scenario. It went on for a good five hours. It's a long scenario, but we had a blast playing that. It was really good fun. And they all played the Scare in the Westfold as well afterwards. So really, really great set of... Great guys. Um, Hugh, who's been a very experienced wargamer, played a lot of Warhammer Fantasy and some other games, said that it's his best gaming moment that he's had playing that scenario. So that really made me feel good about it. And it, it's a fantastic scenario, and we're lucky enough that we made the board, so it looks fantastic and it's great fun to play. So that that's exciting. I've also played some points match games. Me, playing points match games. Yep, I do sometimes. Uh, Dion, I played locally at the House of War, which is a new venue that's opened up just locally from me. Uh, we played two 500-point games. He's preparing for a tournament run by Henry at the same venue called Battle Hardened. So he first of all played his three Nazgul on Falbees against my Dale army. I said, I said I'll take stuff that he's never played before. So I took, on, took my Dale army. My shooting was amazing. I had Bard. I had a lot of militia, some Lake Town Guard and Tariel. And I managed to kill a Wraith of shooting first turn. So I killed the Knight of Umbar. Uh, the militia wounded his fell beast and wounded the wraith as well, and I think it was Tariel took a, took the last point of fate off the the knight of Umbar, and then Bard finished him off with the black arrow, which was really fantastic. So that that ring wraith went down very quickly, and then the ring wraiths, the other two, the Kamul and the witch king, just basically could not buy a roll, and and the militia overtook them and and passed all their courage tests, took them down, courage one across the board, but. Still managed to pass the courage test. I was doing amazing. So that Lake Town Militia, don't let anyone tell you they're no good. They, they are particularly good because you get a lot of them and you get some fantastic heroes because you've got so much points to spend. Then I, we, I played my entire Gundabad Orc force. So I had three Gundabad Orc captains and about 30 Gundabad Orc warriors against uh, Dion's very old school, essentially... Shadow and Flame era dwarf army. So it was all metal dwarves from the first one. Kazagard, Warriors of Shield, the the Bowman, and it was in the Reconnoiteur scenario. And basically I put I managed to outflank him with the Gundabads. Mine was delayed a little bit, but I went really hard on one flank and tried to wipe that out. 
but the dwarves managed to shield and just held me off. So I wasn't able to kill that, and the dwarves overtook and managed to win the game there. So well done to Dion. So we got one game each, which was really good. I probably played another scenario somewhere along the line, but I can't exactly recall it. So there's my games. In terms of conversions, orcs. Lots of orcs. When I get a chance, I'll get the bone saw out and chop a head off an orc and put it on another one and mix and match with my metal orcs and plastic orcs. And I've been painting them as well. So I've over I've got over 40 warriors now of the new orcs and about four heroes and some other things. So it's coming along and my dream of getting the 240 orcs is slowly but surely moving towards fruition. I've got about 100 of the, well, probably not 100, probably about 70 or 80 of the orcs done in my old paint scheme. And what I'm going to do once I get close, so once I get about 60 of these orcs done, I'm going to repaint the other ones. So I don't need them for scenarios anymore. I'll do a little bit of conversion on some of them, repaint some of them, and then be able to use those as well. So that will kick me up really quickly to about, I don't know, 150. And then I'm then I'm going to add more and more to it until I get to the 240. So I'm really looking forward to that. It'll probably, once again, take me mid next year to do that. And I will be breaking things up and starting painting something different. I've got got lots of things on my mind and, and I'm probably going to paint up some stuff for the scenarios the Amy competition so that's me in Middle Earth yeah once again thank you for all those competition entries very excited about playing that We've got David and Matt here to talk about one of our favourite races and factions, cultures in Middle-earth, cultures I think we'll go, the Rohirrim. We're going to talk about the birth of Rohan till the, basically until the, the Fourth Age, what happens to Rohan throughout the books, throughout the movies. We're going to talk about the characters of Rohan that are available in the game. We're going to talk about some Rohan tactics and then... Just mention some of the scenarios that contain Rohan. So I'm very excited that we've got David again for this one because he is fantastic. Lots of good feedback about David's knowledge of the background. And, and he's very good at convincing us he knows it even if it's not quite true. So we'll go on. David, tell us, tell me how did Rohan start? Okay. To set the scene, Gondor is in trouble. Great big plague has gone through. Many people are dead. And the Wayne Riders are coming. The Wayne Riders. Now, the Wayne Riders are basically a kind of Easterling. Tolkien was deliberately vague on what the Wayne Riders are, but it's generally accepted. They're from the East, we'll call them Easterlings. Yeah, and the whole Wayne thing is usually like a wagon or something, so they're, they're travelling around, maybe nomads, uh, whatever. I, I use Easterlings or Khan to represent them at the moment, but, but an Eastern tribe of people, yes. and they're evil. They're evil. Yes. Gondor is in trouble, they're trapped, they're surrounded. They need aid. Who are they going to call? Who are they going to call? In this case, they didn't call anyone. Rohan came on its own. Um, there were a band was it Rohan? Who was it? There was a band of men who lived between the Karok and the Gladden Fields, and they went, Gondor is in trouble. We shall aid them. Yeah, us generic farmers, we, we've got a bit of Fiefdom Syndrome. We've yeah. suddenly got powerful, and we're going to go and help yeah. out Gondor. They were well known for training horses, and they're the only people who have ever heard of hobbits before the War of the Rank. Mm, interesting. At least as far as we know. So they've well, come up... They're the only people who will admit to having known yes. about hobbits. So they've come up, and they when whenabouts. What was the battle where they aided Gondor? Uh, this is why we have Matt. 
I believe it was the Calibrant, but the Field of Calibrant, I yes. believe it was known as. Yeah, big big river there with um, Aeol the Young, and yes. uh, was it Kyrian from Gondor? Uh, he wasn't at the battle, but he was in charge uh, of Gondor yep, yep, at that yep, time. Yep. And against the Wayne Riders, so the Eastlings. And surprisingly, this is in the Shadow in the East scenario yes. book as well. There's a scenario to represent this, but this is where basically Aeol the Young makes his name. Yep, he comes riding out of the north, surprises everybody. Smashes aside some Wayne Rider armies, links up with the Gondor, beats up some more Wayne Riders, and as a reward for his service to the realm, he gets given all the vast land, which Matt will name for us. Used to be known as Kalanathon, but mm-hmm. then be- later, obviously, became known as Rohan. Yeah. So this is this is a lesson to all of you. If you ever want to claim some land, I know that especially in Australia, house prices are just a fortune or whatever. So to bypass all that sort of stuff, if you're a Sydney or Melbourne person, you know what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. You've got to go. You find a, a lord that's in trouble, that's being attacked by some Wayne riders, which happens quite often. You go, you take your horses, you ride and you yes. save them, and you get your land. So you yes. get your nation, you get your area to squat on. And look, it may not be the nicest area in the world, but it is home and it is Rohan. It happens more often than people think, but, you know, the government hushes it up. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So the Rohan was born, and was Aeol their first leader? First king, wasn't it? He was the first king, and they later uh, spoke of themselves as the Aeolingers, so the sons of Aeol is uh, what Rohirrim actually referred to themselves as from then onwards. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's where you get the battle of fourth Aeolingus and things like that, basically referring to Aeol the Young, who once again model in the game. Yes. Okay, so so nothing else happened to Rohan until the um, Third Age. Pretty right? much. Until the end of the Third Age? Um, there is the... Two, there's the two lines of mounds where they bury their kings. The first line is Yol and his lot until we get to Helm Hammerhand. Helm Hammerhand. This is, this is a fantastic character. Here's the bloke who they managed to name Helm's Deep after. Cause, and uh, Hammerhand for so, a reason as well. For a long period of time, the Rohirrim had been harassed by Dunlendings coming out of the mountains. Mm-hmm. So uh, Helm, who was a strong king, said no to all of that. No, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We're going to get rid of them. Yes. So one particularly troublesome Dunlending named Frecker. Oh, Frecker, yes. I know this Frecker. Is he the one who was like the cousin of the king? Or yeah, there, there was some yeah, treachery he, involved. He and some... descent through yes. a king. Yes, yes. There was who a knows distant cousin. Sure. Yep. Frecker came to Helm's council at Edoras and there suggested that the king allow his daughter to wed with Wolf, who was Frecker's son. Mm. Helm saw her through this ploy and uh, and mocked him, mocked Frecker. Yeah, Frecker Helm, then Helm was not afraid to make Helm, fun of people. And eventually Helm just smashed him. He smote him with a blow from his fist. <laughs> Punched him in the face and smacked his head. <laughs> and straight <laughs> out killed him. Yes. yes. It's called one, Helm one Hammerhand for yes, a reason. True. Yeah, he would do very well at nightclubs in Melbourne. So uh, Frecker's men ran away uh, and Helm declared them enemies of Rohan, and they did not get along yeah. very well. After <laughs> I really that. like as well, like you kill the guy and then declare them the enemies. <laughs> yes. This is this is the war that didn't go too well for Rohan. So shortly, shortly after all of this, uh, Gondor was actually attacked by corsairs, and uh, of course asked Rohan for aid, as you would do with your allies. And then the Dunlending thought, well. Rohan's pretty empty at the moment. We might try attacking them a bit more. Yeah, big, yes. big vacancy sign yes. out the front and let them all in. Mm-hmm. Rohan has a history of not defending itself when Gondor calls for aid. It's one of the better points about Rohan from Gondor's point of view. But 
the land was fairly empty. The Dunlandings came sweeping in. They took Edoras. They took Megiseld. And Helm was forced back to what has now become Helm's Deep to endure yes. the siege of the long winter. During which he took up the habit of wandering around in, you know, waist-deep snow with his shirt off, beating up Dunlan sentries with his fists. With his bare hands. Because <laughs> that's what he does. Because <laughs> he, he was bored and he was king, so no one could tell him not to. Till one day he froze to death. I always imagine him with, like, basically the Bayonne model that, that's out now, the guy that's, that's like, shirtless, really big guy in the, in the middle of winter, it's snowing, and he's just walking around just punching guys in the face for fun. And there's the fog and the snow, and this guy comes out of the mist, like, Rawr! Yeah, yeah, some, some peasant walks by, punches him in the face, kills him, <laughs> and then declares him the enemy afterwards. Better yet, he would announce that he was about to come and do this by blowing on his giant horn. <laughs> the so horn of Helm Hammerhand, yes. Absolutely. So fantastic character. You can do some really yes. great head smashing yep. scenarios with him. Yep. So while the King of Rohan is, you know, freezing to death with his fists, you know, um, the guy who's now become King of Dunland and Rohan has set up in Megisald going, yeah, I'm just going to sit here while my troops do all the fighting. Unfortunately, Helm's Deep is their big fortress. Rohan has another final refuge. They have Dunharrow. And there was a group of peasants hiding in there. They went, hang on. That's the arch traitor. Yeah, sure. What about it? His army's at Helm's Deep. He's at Megiseld. Grab your torches and pitchforks. We're going to take him out. So he got jumped by some angry peasants. Yeah, leading that force was actually Helm's nephew as well. Who mm, became... Did you, did you any stories of him smashing people's heads with his fists? Unfortunately not, but you uh, never know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have. He led an army with torches and pitchforks in a peasant's revolt. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so yeah, that's the second line of kings, which takes us up to the War of the Ring. Mm-hmm. So basically, we've got the field of the Calibrant, the big battle there. We've got Helm's Deep, uh, sorry, Helm, Helmerhand, which unfortunately we never got any scenarios for in, in the game. There was hinting at it. The Legions of Middle-Earth book actually had some of the characters from this era there when they were probably planning a Rohan book because it would have been a great little subplot. Mm-hmm. But we don't get that. We have to fill that in with our own scenarios. Even just a nice little profile would have been handy. But Yeah, a profile for Frecker and Helm and away you go. You just have a one-on-one battle and... And two plus, Helm smashes his face with his fist. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no weapon necessary. No weapon necessary. <laughs> so, the problem is, Rohan had a strong king during the whole, you know, Helm Frecker problem. But in the War of the Ring, they were led by Theoden King, who, yeah, was was easily led by worm tongues. Yes, but by by the onset of war, he was fairly well senile. Um, Rohan is led by the three marshals. The first marshal is normally the king. When he gets old, he's supposed to appoint somebody to take up his duties for him. Theoden, for some reason, didn't, so he remained first marshal. He was still good. He was still good. He could still do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their second marshal was Theodred, who was somewhat dead at this stage. Yeah, yeah. And their third marshal was Eamir, or Eamor, Eamond, Matt. Eamir. Eamir. Eamir, yes. Yes. Sorry, I read that one when it was about Yohai and... uh, not good at pronouncing now, so I wasn't. I was even worse back then. Anyway, he was charged with treason at this stage and imprisoned. So, of the three people leading them to war, only one was able to walk, and even then they were leaning heavily on a stick. So, that's the state of Rohan as it goes mm. into the War of the Ring. So, you have basically three companies, essentially, of the riders, of the military force for Rohan, mm-hmm. and a marshal leading each of them. So I like the idea from a, a modelling point of view that you give them each... Like, you saw those banners in the movies where there's some red ones and some blue ones and some green ones. Mm-hmm. I like to think that each of the marshal had their own colour. So you had sort of some with lots of green theme is one marshal and lots of red mm-hmm. might be the king or 
lots of blue might be the mm-hmm. the second or the yeah. the third martial. I think that'd be really good for a themed force to to be able to have say the the first and the third fighting together and have some different colors in there. Yeah. Well, we know that an Erud is around about 120 riders. So whether they would each have a standing Erud of trained blokes or whether they'd split them up, we don't actually know. So you've got the flexibility to pretty much do what you want. Yeah, you can you can do what you want there, but it's good to know a bit of the military organisation and, and mm-hmm. the way it's set up. But it's a very mobile force, the Rohan. The, the fighters move where they want. They often go and aid Gondor because mm-hmm. Gondor always needs yep. help. The um, thing about Rohan is they are exceptionally good cavalry. They, they all know how to ride. They all ride very well. Fighting, not so much. So that's it. They run cavalry and they run it well because their horses are the best in the world. But when they end up like fighting over fords or other Then they're in trouble. They're, yeah, they're, they're not at their peak when they're, they're basically without their, their horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on foot, not, not the best army. Unless yeah. you've got helm. Then you just... <laughs> then no, you don't need an just... army. You just got home. Just make sure that your enemy has to make camp and he'll just slaughter them all in the yeah, night. Yeah, that's right. Just walk up there. So we might get into a bit of the tactics then, shall we? Well, I want to actually just go through some of the models available okay, for yeah. Rohan, first of all, and then we'll talk about the tactics there. So this is a bit of a list overview. So we've got our Kingdoms of Men book, which is the book you want if you've got Rohan there. You start off, you've got some a good hero choices. You've got Théoden, the king of Rohan, with, with lots of options there. So, armoured horse, unarmoured horse, armoured Théoden, Theoden, unarmoured Théoden, shield. This is a theme with the Rohirrim heroes. Yep. They usually have a lot of weapon options. Yeah, a lot of weapon options, so you can customise them a little bit. Mm. They're all mid-level heroes. None of them are fantastically high, but they're, they're, they're heroes of men. They're not like the the ultimate heroes of the ages, although Aemir arguably is one of them. Uh, you got Theodred as well, which is a model you don't see very often, but he's he's worthwhile, especially if you're doing pre-War of the Ring stuff. Uh, you got Hammer, another one you don't see very often, and he's got an option for a horse, which you don't see very often either. So Hammer is the captain of the guard, essentially. Uh, he's in the books quite a bit, isn't he? He's the door warden that meets them when they arrive, I believe. Yeah, yeah. pretty sure he was also buried at Helm's Deep next to the uh, entrance. I believe so. Yes. Mm. Yep, so you've got some, some heroes there. Aemir, you've got a couple of profiles for Aemir. So the the Marshal, the Riddermarks, we talked about the Marshal. He was the third Marshal, was he? Uh, yes. Yep, so third Marshal, the Riddermark, and then Knight of the Palinor, which they basically gave him a bit of a profile bump and a new model just to, to help out with some Palinor scenarios, I guess. Suddenly on the way to the Palinor, he suddenly got stronger and and maybe ate oh. some Lembus or something, and, and away he, he went. He became king, you know. It just yeah. gives him yeah. that little extra boost. Yeah, up to up to strength straight away, or whatever it is that's up. Mm. Um, you've got Eowyn, the shield made of Rohan. Do you remember what she was called when she was not revealed as a... Deerwine? Yeah, I think it was, wasn't it? I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but I believe it was Deerwine. Yeah. I think that was another character altogether, actually. I'm not sure it was. I th- I think that's pretty close to it. But it's worth knowing that, that when she fought, she basically didn't reveal herself as Eowyn. So we'll look that up while we move on to some other profiles as well. It's great that we've done this research ahead of time and not just going from memory. That's wonderful for us. So then we've got Grimbold. Now, Grimbold, David... Oh, we've got, we've got the update. Update on Eowyn. Incoming. It was Dernhelm. Dernhelm. Of course. How did I forget Dernhelm? Exactly. Well, tell us about Grimbold then of Grimslade. I like this character because it's so grim. Yes, goes well with the Grim Hammers. He does. Grimbold. Interestingly, they didn't give him a, a uh, strength buff, which I always found really strange because they're they're showing him as the big strong guy, but mm. he's basically just got a captain profile. He is on foot and he does have a two handed axe, I believe. 
Yeah. So he can really hit hard. It, the model itself is actually one of those ones where, unfortunately, the scale hasn't come out quite right. No. He's pretty big. Yeah. It's, so, but it, it's he, right make a good helm. weapon. He's in the books, I think, at the Fords of Eisen, I believe. He helps out. I'm trying to remember. I can't. That is right. He he did yeah. help out Theodred at the Fords of Eisen and took yeah, so that was there. His... I think he was actually strangely enough mounted at that battle, but doesn't have the option in the game. So no, you know. they've got him in the game as basically he takes care of the stronger peasants. So you've got a strength buff that you can give to to Warriors of Rohan, which is very helpful, and it's a good thing to do. Uh, you've got Mary Adok as a as a, a, a Rohan hero, the Knight of the Mark. Now this is useful because it combines with Gambling Captain of Rohan, our next profile, and his banner, which allows you, when you have zero might, if you're a Rohan hero, you get a might point back at the start of your turn, which is a really good rule and a really good way of representing the royal standard. I wish they had royal banners in other races as well. Imagine yeah, cool. imagine dwarf royal banners or elf royal banners or, or that. It's it's such a great model and such a great way to play. So I, I don't see him a lot lately, but I really do like Gambling. Then we've got everyone's favourite, Erkenbrand. Because his points are well off the mark, everyone takes this guy. So it's not because of his, his theme he's mentioned in the books. He gets to lead Red Shields, which are also really good. You can up your fight value. Uh, it gives you a really nice conversion opportunity to have some Red Shields on your, your cavalry. But he's he's a fantastic hero in the game. The the Courage Warhorn's great. And it's the Horn of Hammerhand. So I imagine that he would ride through there, mm-hmm. blow the horn... And then strip off his shirt, rip it off, <laughs> throw away his weapons, and then start punching some Dunlin men in the face, because that would be amazing. It's interesting oh, yes. that uh, Grimbold's warriors that he leads are also known as Helmingers. Yeah, so the, there uh, you go. So you, the Helm thing throughout. Yeah. So oh, yes. he, he might not be an actual profile, but his influence is there. So. Absolutely. This Erkenbrand, um, he was in the books. He was quite... He was getting on by the time of the War of the Ring, but he was... I think his main thing was he was the guy smart enough to repair Helm's Deep before the war broke out when everyone else was going, no, Saruman is our friend and ally. He went, you know what? I've got this fortress that's sort of fallen down. I'm going to actually rebuild it and, you know, make sure there's a door on it. Things like mm. that. Yes. I seem to... Oh, the Hornburg. That, that, was that where the horn was housed or am I confusing myself? Um, there's, there's, the bi- there's the big horns up in the top. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. Then going on, you've got some generic heroes, your Captain of Rohan, which you can pretty much make into any configuration you want. And uh, the nice thing is they've got the expert rider rule, so you can put a bow and a shield together and you get the benefits of both. And Very also flexible. some, yeah. some things. Mm-hmm. So you've got some real flexible heroes. King's Huntsman's a relatively new hero. This is a basically a, a sniper for the Rohan, which is very good at taking down heroes and, and very good at sitting in a forest and taking them out because he's yeah. in the way rule is that he only ever fails in the ways on a one. So yeah, if you're, Obviously, you know, Rohan's shooting wasn't good enough, so they needed to give him this guy. Yeah, yeah. no, and <laughs> you could not at all combine him with, say, Gambling's banner, so right. he's refreshing his might, and then yeah. Gambling's giving him back might. It would be yeah. amazing. It looks like a nice model. I just haven't quite gotten around. I've yeah, never, that's, I've that's never seen anyone ones. who's quite gotten around to yeah. using it. I think it's because it's an independent hero. So a lot Probably. of times when you go for heroes, you go you think about their warband. Mm-hmm. And because he doesn't get a warband, because he he basically plays a legless role in this one, the, the I'm going to shoot for most of the game and then I'll play combat when I absolutely have to. He's only got one attack. So, yeah, he, he's, I think he's a solid hero. And, and But he came out quite late. And then you get one of the favorites, Aeol the Young, who, of course, is at a different time to all the other heroes. So if you're going to run a themed force with him, you don't take any of your named heroes. You take your Captains of Rohan and your King's Huntsmen with him, basically, yep, that's right. and lead your force. 
you got some good warrior choices. You've got your riders, which are fantastic, especially now that you they don't count towards your bow limit. So you can actually use a whole army of Riders of Rohan is great. Straight up, yeah. Riders of Rohan, they're the best unit in this army. Yeah, they're fantastic. Outriders, damn good as well. Although people tend to find that they're better value on foot than they are on horse. So that's a, a little points an- anomaly there where they end up get taken over Warriors of Rohan on foot for their, their shooting. I wish they came with a horse. I think that would be really good. Or they just changed the points around a bit and made them eight points on their own and the horse five points instead of six would have fixed that nicely. But they've got a really good vanguard rule where they can use a stand fast regardless of range. So that's really fantastic. Yeah, they can actually really ride good. out. Yeah. And originally, they just had them as a little mini hero. And the way you outride with them was basically they walked up to Gambling, got a point of might, and then ran off to the other side of the battlefield and called a move and then ran back and refreshed the might, mm. which worked, but it was, yeah. Or a squad of them hung around with the banner shooting at things. Shooting that was the other way. Which wasn't ones. the themed way of doing it. Yeah. I, I prefer the outriding way. So I like them now a bit better. Royal Guard are fantastic. We know the Royal Guard. They're your, your defense six troops. They're your real tanky troops. They can have throwing spears. They can have horses. They've got the fight four, which I know you can get with the red shields, but they're they're a solid troop, and they've got the best rule in in the, the whole game. Oh yeah, the it's the whole game. game. It's bodyguard. Basically, as long as your heroes around, you ignore the courage rules. Yeah. So you need to charge a troll, you do it, and to guarantee it, there's no chance of failing it. Even Urkenbrand's horn, there's a minuscule chance of failing your courage test. This, there's no chance of failing. You don't even need to pull your shirt off and go punch your people in the face. You pass your courage test already. People underestimate that so often. They don't oh, realize yeah. that that difference between just not even worrying about yeah. it for a second and having a small chance of yeah. failure is just huge. Yeah, yeah, those people always underestimate it. Pin the troll, stop the Nazgul charging, fight the ring bearer. All at the, the same time. All at the same time. You know yes. you're going to do that. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And now you get the one that, that seems to be a real flavor of the month now. I know that lots of people are pushing these guys. The Sons of Aeol. Now, I don't think they're literally his sons. I'm pretty sure that this is a title, but I'm pretty sure it's also invented by Games Workshop. These are your captain-level riders without the might, essentially. They're, they're incredibly powerful. They're expensive for cavalry but they are outstanding, and they ride a move 12 horse. So they've got the pure blood st- steed. They're, they're altogether fantastic, and I think the designers added them in because Rohan was rumoured to be lacking then. Which lacking is to- in punch, I think. Yeah, but totally yeah. false. They really weren't, mm. but they added these guys in, and with the new rules for piercing, they've just become outstanding. Yeah, they've got everything now. Yeah, yep. they're, they're really good. Yeah, on the name, Sons of Aeol, that's mm. literally what the entirety of Rohan calls their own race. So yes. it's kind of a nothing title for the uh, model, yes. but it's it sounds title. impressive. Mm-hmm. But I do like them in an Aeol, the young-themed army. Like having yeah. having four of them with him as sort of lieutenants or, or whatever looks really good. And it gives you something when you don't have access to those named heroes. So you have a squad of them instead. The Warriors of Rohan are pretty generic troops. They can have banners, they can have horns, they can have throwing spears, not normal spears. So that makes them play very differently. And then bows and shield options. And that's our list there. So how do you play this list, Matt? Oh, Jeremy, there's so many different ways you can play this list. Can you name one of them? We'll go with the Cavalry Avoidance Tactic. Good choice. Okay, so this is the tactic that I would use the most when I play Rohan. It's one I'm very, very familiar with. What you want to do is take a very large number of basic riders, 
I don't want to say spam them, but you can spam them if you really need to. You've got a ton of bows in this army. So many bows, because every warrior is going to have them. Unless you've got a few, a handful of Royal Guard, and then you give them throwing spears. So every model in this army is going to be shooting. And you can lead them by, well, you pick your captains, but you can just take your generic captains of Rohan with bows if you want. You can take name heroes if you want. You can take whomever. Essentially, the- every hero in the army works well. You might yeah. throw a banner in or something, but basically your tactic is to shoot, 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 run, shoot, run, shoot, run, shoot, run, mm-hmm. and then when there's not enough enemy left, you go and charge. That's exactly uh-huh. right. Yeah, just pick your moments, make sure you're shooting at all times, and uh, eventually just go in and smash them. Okay. I'm not overly a fan of the avoidance, Rohan, because you've got more bows than anyone, you've got more movement than anyone. If you play it right, the opponent will not get a game, because... I can't outshoot that many archers unless I've taken an army specifically designed to do so, in which case I've known what you're taking beforehand, and I can't close into combat with it. Even if I'm burning might, I'm moving nine inches to your ten, my might runs out, you go back to shooting. So it's a right pain to play yeah, against. Yeah, but you're forgetting that, that potentially you can move twice in a row because of the priority. So if you're thinking about moving six mm-hmm. inches and then six inches, you, you do get caught eventually. Mm-hmm. And basically, you're going to use the terrain and you're going to use your army. You're going to spread out as much as you can and never let the cavalry get behind you and just wall them off and run to it, eventually push them into a corner of the board. Problem is, if you've spread out against all-mounted Rohan, they can concentrate their force a lot faster than you they can. They can, but you can set traps and things and you've got the moves. Mm-hmm. It's not unbeatable it's not no, it's not, not unbeatable it's just a right pain oh without a doubt but you don't get many models compared to other forces so when you get caught and you will get caught eventually you mm-hmm. have to fight some combats you do get brought down very quickly you get brought as well down most of the army is going to be defense five yeah you, mm-hmm. you die fast and if so, you're not if you're not getting the charge and you're not running away after you've got the charge you can get bogged down and get in a bit of trouble so it's a, it's a fantastic army to play but you can't make any mistakes with it so it's a really good one. I've got the next one, which is basically the all-infantry version of this. Now, this one works outstandingly well behind the walls of Helm's Deep. On the ground, not as well as the cavalry, I don't think, but you get a lot of them. You get so many guys, you get so many cheap guys, and you play a very similar tactic to the, the actual horse ones. You do a lot of work with your throwing weapons, so you do a lot of six-inch moves, throwing weapons, You've got your bows. You might have the odd uh, King's Huntsman down on the ground. You might throw a Gambling in or something like that to help out. But basically, you're doing avoidance. You're basically playing Wood Elf tactics with this Rohan list. It doesn't do it as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it can potentially be sort of Grimhammer level effective where you go and you have your Royal Guard with throwing weapons. You avoid, you avoid. You come in with Helmingers or, or something else. The and point of difference really is those throwing spears. The 8-inch yes. inch throwing spears really does spears. help you. Mm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's an effective army. It's probably not as strong as the cavalry version, but if you've got heavy terrain, it's actually very, very good. So I think if, it, it can even work a bit better in some key scenarios. Oh, yeah, without scenario. a doubt. So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you've got, you've got numbers. You've got, you can take a charge and then you can gang up. You can actually sit on an objective instead of constantly that, That's moving. the key, is, yeah. is it works in terrain, in, in a castle or in a forest or whatever. It works particularly well. And, and if you want to, you throw in, throw in some nice allies and away you go. Then there's a mixture. Yep. If there's all cavalry, there's all infantry, then you can also go half and half, which is where you take a whole lot of riders and you take a whole lot of infantry. So if there's terrain, the infantry take it. If there's an open field, send in the cavalry. And oftentimes you do this with like some elite infantry to hold an area, so some royal guard or some um, helmingers, and then the, the cavalry clean up. Or you put a lot of generic Rohan infantry just to take objectives and things while your cavalry does most of the work. 
So it's it's a probably a pretty standard layout and very flexible. Yeah, usually this is something you'll do with other armies and not necessarily Rohan, but it, it does have a few other interesting options. Uh, the King's Huntsman is one which I think would work better in this particular layout. Um, there's, there's a few other different tactics you could use with different heroes that you might not see in either the full infantry or the full cavalry. I would actually like the King's Huntsman in a, an Aeol the Young-themed army where basically, because you, you want something with your heroes and something to threaten heroes, where you take all cavalry, take a fair bit of Sons of Aeol, a fair bit of say, Riders of Rohan, you might take some Royal Guard if you want, and then you take just a couple hunts, King's Huntsmen as your foot troops, and that's all. And they sit in terrain on an objective or whatever, and then they just peg shots at the enemy leader or the enemy shaman or whatever for the whole game. Just keep hitting them and, and really make a mess of them. And it throws off their plan because that combined with your avoidance cavalry and then charging at the opportune times can really disrupt an enemy. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool idea. I've you're always going to have those scenarios where they won't necessarily have a good target to shoot at, but otherwise, yeah, pretty cool. So they're, they're quite a strong army, and they've always been strong, but they're, they're not necessarily easy to use. So they take, for your first army, it might take you a few games to get your head around them, get your head around when you actually just run 10 inches away or 12 inches away from the enemy, and when you stop and shoot, because you can get bogged down if you, say, move five inches for the shooting, and then the enemy ends up catching you. So some turns you've got to move full speed. You end up basically and almost always a horseshoe formation where your your force spreads out and wherever the enemy engage you you basically run away so you've got this horseshoe shape they come at you and then your battle line just moves away moves away and if you play it really well you often end up over the other side of the board so the enemy comes at you and you run around the sides and end up behind them and then you just rinse and repeat when they they come back so if they don't block you off that's what happens and they end up running around the board or just staying in the middle of the board while you peg throwing weapons and bows at them. What I see a lot of people doing is panicking if they do get a couple of models engaged and they might go all in at that point. You can't panic at that point. You can't... You, you just, sometimes you just have to sacrifice a couple of models to keep your strategy going. And you, you want to make sure that your heroes aren't the ones getting sacrificed because you do need that might for moves later on. Yeah. And fighting against Rohan, you're waiting for the Rohan player to make a mistake. So pretty much you put them under pressure and you hope they snap. You hope they panic. If they don't, you're in for a hard fight. If you do, well, you're still in for a hard fight, but, you know, at least you've panicked them. I, I think one of the best ways to put them under pressure is pick a target. Pick a hero, pick something you're just going to send everything at and go for them straight away. And often, if you do manage to get really close to them, they'll go, look, I can't let this happen. I can't let this hero get attacked. I'm going to bring all my force in, and that's exactly what you want. You want to be fighting them in one spot where that hero is. So now good allies for Rohan, some allies that you'd want to add into the force. We're talking about pure Rohan. Straight away, I'm just going to say Gandalf the White with an AMIA-led cavalry force is a fantastic themed and actually a good in-game ally as well because he's got the blinding light, which is fantastic for your avoidance. He gives you a little bit of punch. He means that you can take on trolls and things like that, which normally cavalry find hard to take on. So that's that's a good ally. And I know that uh, Nick ran that at the Masters and did really well with it. It was a tough army to play. Yeah, on the same note, I'm quite fond of uh, Saruman the good Saruman. So it does basically the same thing. You don't have the blinding light, but he's got a uh, slightly cheaper. Yeah. Who does Rohan ally with? They ally with Gondor. Um, pretty much Gondor doesn't have much cavalry. You can take Knights of Gondor, but they don't really count because they didn't have many of them. You want Riders of Rohan with your Gondor. Lots of bows, lots of movement, lots of throwing spears, and some nice infantry to anchor. Yeah, this is a good way of doing it if you want to do the combined arms force because the Minas Tirith and Gondor infantry tends to be a little bit 
little bit more reliable than the Rohan infantry. They bring in that heavy defense. And they're able to stay in a spot. They don't avoid all the time. Whereas your Rohan Cav have a small contingent that can shoot, harass, draw the enemy away, and then play the light cavalry role works really well while your infantry goes and just holds ground, essentially, and and maybe even wins fights. And you can go to the other extreme as well, because as we mentioned, the Rohirrim come from the area which used to be occupied by the Hobbits. So if you're doing an Eol army, Hobbits would make a a fine yeah, ally for them. That would be cool, yeah. I actually like the idea of Treebeard in an ant or two mm. um, with, yeah. with the cavalry contingent. So take Aemir, take some riders, a captain, yeah. some riders, and then Treebeard. And suddenly yeah. you've got a monster well, in your Rohan army. Yeah. They they lived right next to Fangorn, so you can throw in Thundral um, and Mirkwood for that matter. So you can throw in Treebeard, you can throw in Thundral, you can throw in pretty much everybody. Yeah, no, I'm just going to go... Not with at tri- the same time, of course. I'm thinking specifically the, the scene where they run down... All the orcs there, and, and Treebeard's basically next door because I don't no, think the ants no. got into action that often. No, nah. But I do like the idea of Rohan with um, hobbits because the hobbits need some extra movement. They need some extra strength. They need some, you know. Well, they don't really need extra shooting, but extra movement, extra strength. You've got strength three models on horses. It's. I can also see something like eagles adding a fair bit to Rohan. Just to, I know the eagles. Uh, if you're in trouble and you're a good force in Middle Earth, just wait for the eagles to come and they'll save you. Unless and I think you're good. Um, yeah, but <laughs> I think, yeah, dropping in, say, Gwaihir and an Ent, for instance, it, it brings you much the same effect as the Wizards we were talking mm-hmm. about. It gives you some really nice range where the Eagle can go in and do something, and it gives you a nice anchor point with the Ent, so the Ent can really uh, bolster your army there. And the Monster's Hurl can really make sure if you go, say, Cavalry versus Cavalry, mm-hmm. you want to be against infantry, yeah. so, so you can potentially disrupt, mm-hmm. knock some of them down, and then you can really take advantage of your Cavalry. And if you need some Spears, you can ally them with the Woses. Yeah, uh, yeah, the passages on the way there, Thaden um, and the guys travelling to the to Minas yeah. Tirith and the, the War of the Ring, that's a good one. Yep, good thematic ally there. I've done that one before, actually, and it's it's very effective, as you could imagine, because the mm-hmm. Woses, basically, I found the only time they got picked out was when I got hit by enemy cavalry, which mm-hmm. just ran through me, and then we were able to hit the Woses, because the Woses blowing their... hitting shooting with their blowpipes behind Warriors of Rohan. Yeah, they've got that nice wall for the invisibility. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they really do help out. And that was one where I went infantry, uh, Rohan, cavalry Rohan, and then the Wojas, a warband of Wojas, essentially. It wasn't a warband in those days, but it was the equivalent of it, and it worked really well. Okay, now, in the if you want to play scenarios, which of course you do, the books you want to get for Rohan are basically the Two Towers Journey book, because there's a lot of Rohan scenarios in that book. Um, there's also in Return of the King quite a few, and these ones, if you like the points match type scenarios as well, that work well because they're all just points and and heroes there. There's one in Shadow in the East where the the sons of oh sorry, Aeol the Young. We talked about the field. It's a really of nice Caliban. scenario too. That's a good scenario, and there's some in White Dwarfs and things, but there's not a lot of other ones around with the Rohan. It's mainly those. But they they feature so heavily in the movies. There's a lot in the two towers, a lot of Return of the Kings. It's unfortunate there was never Rohan source book. Siege of Gondor. Yes, good call. Siege of Gondor has an appendix with the Helm's Deep scenario that I like. Actually, it's the I think it's called Defenses Must Hold or something like that, where it's on a custom built Helm's Deep board, and that's a fantastic one. Especially if you don't want to play the Helm's Deep from the Two Towers books, which are smaller ones that don't represent the whole battlefield. And then there's one where they they break out, they charge out of it, which is good as well. Yeah, that's what we've got for Rohan, I guess. So, yeah, get excited about Rohan. We're very excited. We can't wait to play through those AMS scenarios. So this should be good.
We're back with a Building Middle Earth product review. We're looking at the Foreground, which is foreground.co.uk's set of laser-cut MDF terrain, which is really a fashion now to make some laser-cut terrain. Most people can get together with a group or start a business with a laser cutter now. They're not too expensive. But some of the companies have been doing some fantastic work designing terrain for gamers. And Foreground are, are my personal favorite. And we just did a big order with them. So David and Matt can talk about this as well. We basically just ordered some of the, the Arab buildings for a desert terrain building for Harrod. We've ordered some of the Japanese buildings for our Khand Easterling board. I've also I've got some of the, I think they're Saxon buildings as well for my Rohan. And I think Tim ordered some Norse buildings as well. So we've got quite a mixture of buildings there, all, for, all suitable for Lord of the Rings. Danny got some of the... Some of the Mordenberg buildings? Yeah, the Fantasy Realms buildings, which are slightly different scale, slightly more exaggerated, but I think fit really well as well, and I'm probably going to pick some up later for Lake Down. We're thinking, other than the obvious Mordheim, for Lord of the Rings, they could probably make a decent at the back of Bree, one of those smaller sort of towns. You could use them for a lot of generic ones. The Arab buildings are pretty obviously going to be a Haradrim-style board. We picked up a very good number of them, uh, so we should be able to make a pretty large sort of town out of them so pretty keen let's actually talk about some of the new ones we've got here i've got the arrow building we made one of them i've got in front of me what i like about it is that you've ended up with texture on all sides so you you look at it oftentimes you only get texture on the front and it looks very two-dimensional whereas they've used bricks and then a layer of mortar on top of it to give you some depth it's got windows and doors that work and then the, the actual top of the roof is really playable. It's You can put your models on top of it. You can play. You could do Aladdin-style jumping from roof to roof and getting tangled in clothes. It's also got a little door on the top of it. And you can pull the roof off as well and then play inside the, the terrain. The only unfortunate part is the, the actual ground is not textured. So I might have to do something about that. But overall, I'm quite happy with the end result. Yeah, that's fairly easily fixed, I think. You could definitely make that look pretty cool on the inside. The the inside walls actually do still have the uh, cracks and sort of stuff like that. The windows look fantastic. The windows, they have uh, lattices over them, and they they really look very, very realistic. I really like the uh, the way that they've done these really small holes in the building so that you can actually tell that it, it looks real, it looks realistic as if someone would be living in there. And that's without any modification. So I just assembled that one. And because it's my first one that I assembled, uh, I didn't do the best job in the world of it. I didn't really push the, the walls tightly enough, which you've got to make sure you do. So I've ended up having to fill the corners up a little bit, which I've got no problem with. But it's, it is something to watch out for, especially if you only get a couple. You don't want to make them look bad. So this is straight knife glue and elastic bands. It comes colored. It slots together. It's... You could definitely go to town, give give me like some extra paint jobs. One of the things I found is some of the the very top bricks you end up because of the texture on it. I had to trim them down a little bit, so you've got some bricks that I want to repaint and touch up just to make even. I probably want to have a bit more natural variation in the color of the bricks, so go over some with a bit of brown. I probably want a little bit more highlights on the actual mortar. So what I'll do is get essentially a dry brush, but instead of dry brushing, you you poke it. So you, you basically get a thick brush, you rub as much paint off, and then just just do like a stabbing action on the wall just to break it up and get some light colors there. But even without that modification, it do, really does look good, and it's a good size, whereas it's very playable. 
it takes a model essentially its whole movement to get from one side to the other, so you can use it to hide. It's a really solid line of sight blocking terrain, but you could also open it up and play inside it for those wonderful scenarios. I'm really impressed with the door mechanisms as well. It, the first ones I got, which were my what I used for Rohan houses, the doors essentially just fell out. So the way you open the doors, pull it out and put it in again. Now they've made it so the doors actually open, and it's tricky to put together. But I really like that you can actually just open and close the door and and mm-hmm. even more playability. So fantastic bits of terrain and I think great value for the price. Next one we're going to look at is the Japanese houses as well. And these ones, I guess I'm also impressed with. David's got one in his hand as well, which I haven't done anything to at the moment. I think I need to trim down the thatching of it. It came with some teddy bear fur, which you put on top of it to make the thatched roof and... It needs to be a little bit of a haircut, I think, at some points. But other than that, I think it's looking really good. Yeah, it's thatched roof, wood-paneled sides, nice narrow window bars, definitely an Eastling board, a Khan board. Could even pull it onto a Rohan board if it was, say, the the, vil- the village chief's house. Just, you know, that bit fancier than everybody else's. But you could, Yeah, you could use it also maybe as a Dunland house or something like that. So looking the same... Similar to the Rohan architecture, although I can't remember if Dunland had houses or not. But a generic people's, you could definitely use it. It's You don't have to put the top part of the roof on either. So that top part I've got there, which is very obviously Japanese, could be could be optional. This one, more so than the Arab house, you can see the, the joins and things. So especially if you look at the roof, you get this light wood color, but then the sides of it are a brown. So you can spot some things that you probably want to add a bit of texture to. So it, there's a few few key parts where it looks like it's it's the MDF. But what I really like about it is the amount of texture they put into it. So you look at your wall panelings and there's there's the wooden walls. There's also the, all the frames in there and there's little decorative corners on the side. Mm-hmm. So you really do get a texture. And even without adding anything to it, you get some really good results. And you take the roof off and it's got the half-raised floor on one side for, you know, the sleeping area or just, yeah, the level of thought they've put into adding details to this. It's quite a nice kit. And once you get the bigger houses as well, they've got some white panellings as well, which looks fantastic. And the, the biggest house has got the paper doors. So you can, the sliding doors and they're, they're papered, which looks great as well. So that one I want to do a bit more work on. I want to do some detail work on the paint job, probably even more so than the Arab house. But once again, it's really simple stuff to do. And I love the floor of the building, which you open it up and they've actually textured the floor, which is... I really think a really fantastic addition, and it's got the same door mechanism as the arrow buildings. The other half of the floor is not textured, so would you do something with that, do you think? I would probably paint it. It's basically the Japanese houses have that raised area floor there, and as you get bigger, bigger ones, you get a cooking pit in there as well, so you get some more stories behind that, and it's just an extra little bit of detail that adds to it very nicely. Yeah, I was very close to buying some of these myself. I, uh, I decided to go with the arrow buildings, but these are very, very nice as well. And there's also carts and things you've got with them and fences and all kinds of stuff that you can add into it. Now, the what I found is just recently is that the bigger houses, they come in a box instead of in the, the bags that they, they often come in. And the bigger houses, they give you a whole bunch of pegs and a whole bunch of rubber bands, which is fantastic. If you get a bunch of them, open your big houses first, pull out those rubber bands and those pegs because they make assembling so much easier. These aren't that hard to assemble but they're not super easy either. You have to put a bit of thought into them. You have to make sure your pieces fit. You have to try them out. And But it's well worth the effort. And they, they'll make a simple board look really good really quickly. And if you want to go to extra details, you can do what I did on the Rohan board and actually build bases for the houses, so some foundations, and really blend them in nicely. 
Now, David, do you want to talk a bit about the fantasy terrain that you got? The fantasy buildings we picked up, some of them, the smaller ones, are your intact sort of shingled buildings with that sort of exaggerated lean outwards that you find in most fantasy architecture. But some of the larger ones, we ordered the um, ruined variety just to, well, just to spice things up a little bit, you know. Give us a real battlefield sort of feel. I really want you to talk about those ruins because those ones, when I opened up the package, I did was loath to give those over because they looked fantastic. Well, they are. The one we've got assembled at the moment, it's two-story, it's sheared straight down the middle, it's got loose shingles, it's got loose tiles, it's got bits of ladder sticking up. It's a fair bit of detail went into ruining it. And... Because it's ruined, you can also spread it out a bit more to make it look even bigger than it is. And I think you could make a very nice board very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. In the interest of full disclosure, I did this order. I basically, because I make the terrain for Masters, I got in contact with Foreground and said, I make the terrain for Masters. Here's a whole bunch of photos of my tournament. I used Foreground buildings on it last time. Can you help me out? I want to buy a lot of them. Are you able to sponsor me? And they, they gave me a decent discount on this stuff because I, I ordered for a tournament. And I think they pretty well do that for anyone who runs a tournament. So as long as you've got an advertised tournament and you've got like all the official documents and all that sort of stuff, they, they're actually pretty happy to help out, which is a great thing. I don't know if they'll do that forever. I don't know how profitable it is for them. Uh, uh, there might be a point in time where they just say, no, everyone's got enough terrain for us. Let's go back to normal prices. But that's worth looking into if, you want, if you've got maybe a club or you've got something else together and you run an event. Go contact them. But even then, I bought some without the discount, and I still was very happy with the price and the, the quality that I got for it. I think in the future, when we actually go ahead and put all of these together, we should probably take some photos and put them up on the uh, Facebook page. Photos on the Facebook page. That is genius. I like I that know, idea. Right? Let's oh, do that. that. That's why we have this guy. You know, the bright <laughs> Full ideas. of ideas. <laughs> yeah, definitely full of it. It's really good. So I'm going get, to get Matt over. We're going to assemble these Arab buildings. We're going to make a desert board. So... What I find of the buildings is you need some more details as well. So our plan at the moment is to to give some of the buildings a little bit more detail, put some like blankets and things that are hanging out, some some washing. Washing lines, yeah. Washing lines, which are going to look great. We're Ladders across the some top Some palm of the trees, some some vendor stuff. So have actually some, some people selling things. So if anyone listening owns a company that makes washing lines or vendor stuff, then you know who to contact. Yeah, hook us up, hook us up. We'd love that. <laughs> I also want to put... Because the buildings have such a flat area, I want to put ladders across so that they can climb from one building to another and basically have a board where you can play on two levels and do it really effectively and then some ladders going up the sides. Some of them have staircases going up, but I think it'd be fantastic to do a board like that. Basically, with a village, you're looking at covering probably about a quarter of the board to, to a third of the board in the village and then you have other things there. So you have your entrance to the village, you have your roads, your supply lines, all that sort of stuff. And then a little bit of uh, countryside just on the far Yeah, side. something, a river or a, something else. Mm. You want your, I think for a desert one especially, you want your, your town near an oasis because I think it, naturally you would do that if you had some sort of source of water and, and some, some plants and things so you can break up your colors really nicely. But I think it's going to look stunning. I'm really looking forward to making this board. Watch this space. I'm now Indeed. thinking of all the fun I could have with a Hasharan on one of these. Oh, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? And just coming out of the buildings and, and having sleeping villages and all kinds. Of, you could do such fun scenarios mm-hmm. with that. It's exciting stuff. And the, the the Japanese one, I'm looking forward to making a Khan board with that. And look, I'm, I'm really tempted to do another order. I'm really, really eyeing off those fantasy ones for Lake Town. Another, uh, also another board that would be good for Hasharan. 
every board's good for Hosharan as long as it's got terrain on it. That's my Elven point. cloaks and terrain work really well together. So yeah, that's all on that foreground. Check them out. Uh, they didn't sponsor us particularly, but they did give me a bit of a discount for the the master terrain. So there's a disclosure. That's my agenda there. But I think it's worth checking out. Even just go on the website if you want to have a look and and see how you go. This episode of A Shadow in the Past, we look all the way back to the Fellowship Journey book. Now, last episode, we did the Fellowship of the Ring rules book, which was from the very first release of the Lord of the Rings. This one's from 2005, I believe. One of the gentlemen in my podcast will check the date for it. But this was when they re-released the the One Ring Blue book, and they re-released the adventures of the Fellowship of the Two Towers Return of the King in the Journey book format. This is one of my favorite books. So I'm very excited to talk about this one. And we've got two copies of the books of three people. So we will go through, explain to you what's in this, and then decide at the end, is it worth you getting or not? Yeah, looks like 2005. Yeah, that's, I seem to remember back to there. Okay, take it away, Matt. All right, so we start off with a couple of lovely pictures on the inside. Oh, we'll talk about the, the front cover first. We start off with a picture of Frodo, the ring, a goblin, and below that, the Buckleberry Ferry with the four hobbits and a bunch of uh, Nazgul chasing them and screeching into the night. And uh, it's a very, it's a very mood-setting front cover. I quite yeah. like it. It's got Fellowship of the Ring down the bottom. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Hard-hitting content here. Here the we cover. go. Here's the cover. And you've got the Moria Goblin and Frodo having a staring competition over the ring. And yeah, and we recommend judging the book by the cover. This is a nice cover, so it's clearly going to be a nice book. Let's see how nice it is. It's in the proper Lord of the Rings blue colour as well. Oh, it's got to be blue for some reason. It's only going to get better from here. We move on to the contents page. They've got a different symbol for each type of uh, content in the book. You missed the first, you missed the frontispiece. Okay, there's a frontispiece. It it says, The Lord of the Rings strategy battle game. It's got a nice quote from the Fellowship of the Rings. Who let this guy on the podcast? It's got some photos of hobbits. Moving on. You, you interrupted for that, David. Yeah, it ha- we get have out to, of here. We have Matt, to do on. it properly. Otherwise, the professionalism it is real. So we have the contents page. There is a different symbol for each kind of thing we've got in here. We've got terrain. We've got scenarios. We've got painting. We've got how to play the game. Probably in there somewhere. I guess we will find out. With the introduction, we've got a bit of fluff here. Welcome to the Fellowship of the Ring, the first in of a new range of the Lord of the Rings strategy battle game supplements. It goes on from there to explain exactly what the game is and what you can find in this book. We have scenarios, painting, and terrain, as I mentioned, and we'll uh, check out the next page. Okay, I'm glad you've done that really fast. And it's signed by Matt, with only one T. Yes, yes, not not me then. Matt Ward, who gets an unfortunately bad rap in a lot of Wargames community, but seems to make some good Lord of the Rings products. So let's get into the real content of it. David, take us away. How do we start off? How do we start off? We turn the page and it says how to use this book. So we can skip that because we've got a book. We can use that. So we're on to how to paint rangers. Which 
by the looks of it, are your Rangers of Middle Earth. So you've got a painting guide, and throughout this book, you've got painting for for the models that are appropriate for the scenario. How in-depth do you think this painting guide is? It's giving us two to three steps per area, so three steps on the coat, two steps on the tunic, three on skin. So it's telling you which colours you're aiming for, but after that, you've got to figure it out for yourself. And it gives it ends up the result. I think it's about a tabletop standard paint job. It's it's not spectacular, but it looks pretty good once you put it down there. So I think it's it's good for someone who hasn't done a lot of painting before. Yeah, it's a great beginner's guide. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the paints are out of date though, aren't they? So the colours there, you have to adapt them yourself and try and work out what colours to use. You can of course find the uh, comparison chart which yes. Games Workshop has. So mm-hmm. now these Rangers of the North models as well, they're they're quite decent models. Definitely look very Ranger like. But you could also use the Rangers of Middle Earth for these ones as well. You don't have to use the metal ones. So there's heaps of Ranger models available. But they're basically the the Dunedain of the the North Striders men and they we start off with i think a scenario next isn't it um more painting guides next more painting guide. oh damn i wanted the scenario what are the painting guides go on it moves through ringways through hobbits you get the occasional quick tip about dry brushing or basing through some scenery okay go go to the scenery because that's something different so we talk about the hobbits and that we've seen those painting guides before something similar but the scenery this is interesting because once again you go on a scenery journey so what do we start with we're starting with rocky outcrops which are your, you get your styrofoam and you cut it up and you glue it back together again. Isn't there a board? Am I, am I, uh, yeah, you probably want to want to get a board first, yeah, I would yeah, say. Yeah. Yep, yep. So you've got your board. Uh, it recommends, uh, what is this, four foot by four foot to start off with. So yeah, Most of the scenarios are four foot by four foot, so that's a good start to do. I'd recommend doing another panel and get it so you can go six by four up to if you want. And the more the more you can chop it up, I think the better because you can get more variations in that. But they've got a, a pretty standard board, which we'll talk about some basting techniques later on in this episode, and I think they would apply for these boards. They've got that, but I think you could use some of the basting techniques there. And then you go to the rocky outcrops, which look very interesting shapes, and this is because later on we use them for something else. Very, we missed the page, haven't we? we missed something polygonal. Else. No, no, no. The, the uh, rocky outcrops are first up, and then you have your hills. And then you have building the table itself. So oh, it, it does make a progression, a funny kind of order here, but uh, you do eventually end up with a table full of terrain with uh, a few different bits and pieces. It's got some trees as well, shows you how to make a forest. Yeah, it, throughout this book, the, the terrain itself looks pretty decent, but my recommendation overall is add more. So if they've made two forests, make four. If they've made three rocky outcrops, make six because almost all the scenarios work better with more terrain, because the table's a bit sparse, and it you do feel it when you're playing the game, where the, you, you're trying to run to your one forest and hide, whereas if you had double that, you're, you're pretty good about it. So if you're going to go through the journey of making the terrain, double it up. Go twice. Go twice the amount. It does seem like they're trying not to overwhelm a first-time player too much right at the start, and my advice would be get yourself overwhelmed. Go and really smash out the terrain. David's already overwhelmed, so let's get on to the scenarios before he blows up with all this terrain building. too much terrain. Too Ah. much terrain. He's not a terrain builder as such. Okay, the hunt begins. Scenario one. Rangers versus ring wraiths. Interesting participants to start the fellowship, isn't it? Because it's not your typical what you expect. If you see the movies, you've got the prologue, which is the the second age stuff, which is not in this book at all. And you've opened up with some no-name characters against the Ringwraiths. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting start. It's not particularly iconic for the uh, for the first movie and, and not even for the first book. This is really outside of the books. 
So it's a strange place to start, but also a very interesting one, one which uh, opens up a lot of dynamics for these for these scenarios because there are several of them like this. And it, it raises a lot of different uh, ways of playing the game right off the bat. Yeah. So I think you'd be a little bit disappointed if there wasn't many scenarios, if this was the opening. But because there's so many scenarios, it actually turns out to be a really good opening. Because what you do is you don't care about the good players. So immediately you're not worried if you lose a hero. So if the rangers die, they die. Who cares? But you get used to using the ring wraiths. So it's a good way to to introduce the antagonists and basically... The ring wraiths are just trying to get through to where they want to be, and the rangers are trying to stall them, and, and they'll give their lives if they have to. It is a strange place to start, however, because this is the opening scenario of the book, and it's thrown three ring wraiths on the table. You've got nine points of might on the good side. There are a lot of heroic stats wandering around. So oh, without a doubt, out... you need to know the game, and, and mm-hmm. the hero stuff throws you in the deep end, but you'll learn pretty quickly. I find a lot of these scenarios are okay with the new rules, and we'll go through them in more depth in scenario spotlights and things. But they they often become a little bit more challenging with the new rules because there's more options there. So if you want to play them as is, I would recommend using the rules that are around at the time. And those books are pretty easy to pick up as well. So if you can pick up this book, try and pick up your old Lord of the Rings rule book as well. It's a blue one. And that will take you through the rules that are appropriate for these scenarios. Yeah, Heroic March in particular is going to stuff you up. Yeah, it, it makes a difference in a lot of the scenarios. So that's often the first one you get rid of. Some of it doesn't, but if your heroes have might, which oftentimes the ones running away don't in these, the ring wraiths don't have the might, so it doesn't make a huge difference. They do not list the war gear that you have on the models in this book. So your ring wraiths will just say ring wraiths. They won't say on horse. They're riding. Put them on horse. Basically put them on horse in every scenario unless they're inside a weather top because otherwise the scenario will be incredibly boring. So if you go, and the problem is the pictures have them all on foot. So the person who did the pictures is not the person who wrote the scenario, so it tricks you. So watch out for that. Use your best effort, best brain brain power on what's in the books or in the movie at the time. So the hunt begins. The next scenario is pretty similar, isn't it? The Trust of Arnor. We've got even more ring wraiths, but only the same amount of rangers. So all nine of them. Uh, the rangers come back in this scenario, so it doesn't. It's still a fun scenario. It's still a really good one. The same terrain. Basically, you, you've almost got the the models for this. Once you've got that, you need you need the nine ring wraiths on a horse to play the scenarios. But it's well worth getting them. It's worth getting some friends together, getting three each, and and playing through them. I do like these scenarios. They're a good start to play. They're a good way to introduce the heroic stats. But we'll go on because I want to save this for a scenario spotlight. Okay, scenario three: shortcuts make long delays. This is where we finally get to meet our hobbits. We've got some heroes. Three scenarios in a row. I'm already very excited. And this one, we add some more terrain, don't we? Yeah, we do. We get a couple of hedges. We get a lot more trees in here. So, yeah, the board is already starting to look a lot better than it did from the first scenario. Yeah, the hedges are a really good addition because they break up your game quite a bit. The participants in this scenario are... Frodo, Sam, Peregrine Took, and Gildor. So, straight away, who's missing... Where has Mary gone? This is following the book. Mary has not joined them yet. So we've got a fellow called Gildor, who has become a bit of a, a hard-to-find model, but he's an elf. So use any elf you want for Gildor. It doesn't really matter. It's a single elf on his own with the hobbits, which adds an interesting dynamic because you've got a hero that could actually take on a ring wraith in combat. Frodo can survive okay against a ring wraith, but at this point, they've really got none of the equipment that they wanted to do. And they want to avoid combat with ring race wherever possible. So this is where the good side just runs. Runs on runs, and the ring race are doing their best to make a mess of them. And this is the one where the ring raids are following the sentry rules and you're trying to sneak past them. Yeah, yeah, you're trying to trying to go through and, and make sure 
that you don't spend too much time getting mushrooms. So the next thing we have is how to make rivers, which uh, you will use much of the same materials as what you've already used here. They're very basic rivers. They'll have, they'll have them in uh, a number of pieces so that you can lay them out how you like. And look, I, I think there are probably going to be some better ways to make rivers if you, if you really go searching for them. Yeah, basically it's an MDF base with some raised sides, and I think it's effective. I've got a set, basically, that I made just out of this book, and I really like them, and I've used them for quite a bit. It's how much detail you go in the painting, and they've done a really good job making the middle of it darker to add some depth to it, because you've got a 2D shape. So they've, they've done a good job of that, and they also later on, I think on the next page, make a Buckleberry Ferry, which is key. If you make a Buckleberry Ferry, suddenly the river looks really, really nice. Looking more closely, they actually have given it some really nice texture on the water. So, you know, it's more it's better than I thought at first glance. I think it's so far it's the best terrain that they've they've put together. Like the, the trees are really nice, but they're commercially made trees. This one looks quite effective and it's worth worth making river. Water features are really good for the game, but also great for the scenarios. Okay. After the ferry, the ford and the jetty, we're on to scenario four. The Buckleberry Ferry. And the board is coming along, isn't it? It's looking really nice here with this giant river in there, the trees in the middle, the Buckleberry Ferry. And I really enjoy this scenario, running past the forest, trying to hide there, avoid ring race, and then go there. Which hobbits are in this scenario? We have Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Mary showed up. Mary, because it's the Buckleberry Ferry, which is where we meet Mary. We've also got three ring race here. I also like that Gildor disappeared. Like, Gildor just said, yeah, I'll help you out. No, I'm going. See you later, guys. You three will be fine. I'm sure there's another hobbit somewhere down the road to help you out. Again, following the book quite well. He does leave them uh, to yeah, make their own really way to... Yeah. yeah, it's a fair way, too, over to... Uh, it's like, uh, you're being followed by black riders. This is serious. I'm leaving. Yeah, it's not <laughs> suspicious at all, is it? That, like, the, the Nazgul are following him. And the, uh, <laughs> it's like, they're following you, you say. Hmm... Yeah, yeah. I just happen to be going that way now. <laughs> Three hobbits and nine ringwraiths chasing you. I'll help you out for 30 minutes and then I'll see you later and I won't tell anyone either. Oh, no. He told people. He just took so long about it that it didn't actually matter. Yeah, it takes a long time to tell people. So another good scenario. So we've had four so far and they've all been pretty similar terrain all with the, the ringwraiths so far. So different. Not too different many models going on. and No. Yeah. No, very hero-based ones. These tend to be very swingy, depending on how you go with century and things. So play them a few times if you're going to play them, and, and eventually you'll get a good scenario there. But you can get you can get an, an uninteresting scenario if, say, the ring race never find the hobbits. Sometimes there's just too much terrain or not enough terrain, so rebalance your board as, as required. That's true, but I do recommend the doubling up the terrain where possible as well because there's still a lot of blank areas here. So on to the next page, we have another painting guide or another couple of painting guides. We have the Barrow Whites, which you will, of course, need for uh, a scenario coming up very shortly. These have been given a, uh, a very heavy dry brush. I'd, I'm not a huge fan of the way the uh, the painting guide has gone here. I think you've got so many options with painting ghosts that taking this approach is probably not the best way to go. No. I, I'm personally a big fan of electric blue colors on ghosts. It's a good idea, and it's a good, simple way of getting them out quickly, but if you've got any painting experience, you want to put some more in it. I do love the artwork here. It's straight out of the Shadow in the East source book, a journey book, whatever they had at the supplement, and the sepia barrow white and the sepia goldberry look absolutely great on these pages. And you've got Tom Bombadil looking sort of like Radagast. They've given him some very pink cheeks. Yeah, he's got some rosy cheeks. I think he had rosy cheeks in the book, didn't he? 
I think so, but gee, <laughs> I think most people had rosy cheeks in the book. True, that's true. But you want you want to make your rose stand out. This scenario is fantastic. The fog on the Barrow Downs has been one that's been around for ages, and it's just it's a really really good scenario. It's one of the best in the book. You've added some extra terrain here, but they haven't really done a very good job of it. They've made barrows by putting rocks on top of hills. Yes, that is not a barrow. I think you probably want to make your own there. No, make some burial tombs. It's it's an easy bit of terrain to make. What I did was basically make a hill mound with with a gate. So I just yep. yeah put a door on there. There's lots of ways to do it. Some people make them so you can open them up and play inside them. For this scenario, you don't need to, but it's it's a fantastic scenario. You've got the old forest on one side. You've got, I think, put more rocks in. More rocks there. If you can get a fog machine or a smoke machine, put it over this because it is fog on the Barrow Downs and there is an unfortunate absence of fog. If, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't own a fog machine, just get up early one winter's morning and play it out. And... Oh, that's right. You need to go to the country in the middle of winter. So... Right, of course, just buy a bag of cotton wool and just drape it all over the table. Cotton wool. No, no, no. You've got to do it properly. <laughs> so let's all go trip middle of winter to Ballarat and let's play some fog on the Barrow Downs. It'll be amazing. Yes. Have a special, like, fog on the Barrow Downs camping trip. More painting guides. We have Aragorn, who's looking lovely in a muddy green uh, shirt. It's very, very appropriate for the books. It, lo- it looks quite good. For the movies, I should say. How would we know who looks... Well, he probably does look like that in the books. Yes. Yep. Anyway, he looks very, very uh, like Viggo Mortensen. So they've done a good job with uh, that sculpt. It's, it is one of the better Aragorn sculpts, I think. So anyway, the paint job gives you a few more steps in the face this time around, I think, and... It shows. It looks quite good the way that they've done the detail there. Yeah, so they're adding a little bit more to their paints, but there is a lot of pages put up to painting guides, which is, if you need them, it's absolutely great. If you don't, it might be just filler pages for you. I know that I personally skip through the painting guides because I'm already past this stage, but it's designed for beginners as well. So that that's good if you if you haven't had that experience. But over the page is something much more interesting. I'm on Saul. We're building Weathertop. Yeah, so this is if you don't have the Forge World piece that was out for a short amount of time, build your own. This one's probably much more playable than my one. They've used a lot of insulation foam, the the hard foam for it, and they've got a nice little playing circle for it. And this is it's great that they've introduced a new board size. It's a good detailed guide for it, lots of foam board, and they've even got the templates later on, so you get your, your photocopier out to make some templates. So I think if you made this, you'd be very happy with your terrain piece. You can straight away tell how much how much design has gone into it. It's really game-based, a lot more so than some of the terrain that's come previously, and yeah, it, there's so many steps to it, and it just it looks fantastic in the end. You use a couple of pieces out of, I believe, the Ruins of Middle-Earth Yeah, Ruins of Middle-Earth well. set with the, the statues, which... Really add to it. That, those little details help you out. Um, for some reason, they've got these little pizza slices that you can cut out of the terrain and use for terrain for other scenarios, but they never use them for other scenarios, I don't think, in this one. So they just... I think it's to suggest that you can keep using this for other things, but honestly, I wouldn't bother doing this. I'll just put the whole bit of terrain down because I think it's a fantastic bit of terrain. And theirs is really playable because it's nice and open and it's a big, big... What is it? 12-inch diameter circle? Yeah, it looks like that. They've also put... Uh some of the other ruins of Middle-earth terrain inside as well. So Yeah, that's really that, good as well. Yeah. Break up your scenario. And then you've got the first scenario here, which is an interesting one with the, the Gandalf versus the Nine. Scenario six, the Grey Pilgrim and the Black Riders. So it is Gandalf the Grey. Very nice model, by the way. Fighting the Nine. Yeah. This scenario I want to play through a few more times because basically he starts off against a couple of ring race and there's more and more come. 
and he has to kill, I think it's four of them or five of them or something like that, but it's really, really tough. One moral scenarios are tough to make, and they're tough to balance, and they're tough to play. So this one is one that I want to play a few more times. I really want to do a scenario spotlight on it and actually balance it up because I've had some unfortunate experiences with it, but the idea is fantastic. Basically, the unfortunate experience is the ring ref's ganging up on Gandalf and killing him. It depends who's playing. depends whether or not that's unfortunate, but... There are, of course, quite a few of these uh, weather-top-type scenarios. So, uh, Are there any more that are just Gandalf with them? No, not that I recall. There's there's two in this book, but other than that, there's not a huge amount of other weather-top scenarios. But at least if you make this terrain piece, you get two scenarios from this. Yes, true. Moving along, we have Scenario 7, Pursuit into the Wilds, which is Gandalf getting chased by ringwraiths, and he's got a couple of um, rangers with him this time. I don't actually remember this scenario. I want to play this one again. So can you just go through the participants? Oh, you've gone through the participants. The general idea is Gandalf has to escape. Is that right? Objectives. The good side wins if Gandalf survives and at least two ringwraiths are slain. So half the ringwraiths. Evil player wins if they can kill Gandalf or three of the ringwraiths escape. Oh, so it's the ringwraiths that are running. Ah. Gandalf's got him on the run. Gandalf's got him on the run. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's pursuing them after the after the weather top. So he's probably on foot. Mm, so the hunter becomes the hunted. Yeah, this is. I want to play through this again because I want to work out who's got horses, who doesn't, and all that sort of stuff. That looks an interesting one. And you go. I think it's over the page to the the famous Amon Sul, which we've covered in the scenario spotlight. Great scenario. Yeah, so that's the classic one. You can find our other episode on that. We've covered it in full. I've so. talked about it all the time. I talk about it every opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. Next so, up. We've got some more painting guides here. We've got some elves and Glorfindel and also uh, Gildor and Haldir as well. So all of the elves throughout the book. Again, just simple painting guides, just not much progression from the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we'll move on to the next page. Scenario 9, Flight to the Ford. Nine scenarios already, and Flight to the Ford is the one where Glorfindel or Arwen come and get Frodo and then... Basically, uh, uh, trying to escape the ring raves and, and use the water if you can to help them out there. So it's an interesting scenario. We won't go into too much detail on it, but the board's coming along. It uses your river again, which is really great. Does it actually have the options in the participants for Glorfindel or Arwen? Is it that does, correct? yes. So you just choose the one you want to use. They're spending most of the time running, so it doesn't really matter. Mo- most of them can beat a ring rave in combat. Honestly, though, if you take Arwen, you're probably slightly at a disadvantage over Glorfindel, but either way, it's... The ring ringwraiths can usually paralyze them if they get enough of them, or not paralyze, transfix them. So either one, it's it's can be tricky for the good side, actually. Just a little detail. It does specify that the Witch King does not have his Morgul Blade in this one. Of course, he's already used it. He's already Florida. used it. It's good detail. So they, they actually try to tell you that walkie. They never tell they have horses, but they will tell you he doesn't have his sword. I think one of the early ones mentioned that your hobbits didn't get extra equipment, but not a whole lot of help. Yeah, yeah More just, just mentioning Sting in the ring, for yeah. instance. Yeah. So we, we've talked about the painting guys pretty much in depth. We've got Legolas and Gimli and Boromir. So we're getting through the Fellowship, which is good. And then we get to use them in the next scenario, which is scenario 10. The Hounds of Sauron. I don't know if you remember this in the books. It definitely was in the movie. But basically before they enter Moria, they're attacked by a bunch of wargs and had to fend them off over the night. And then in the morning, they check it out, and there's no sign that they were ever attacked by the wargs, like no footprints or whatever. So there's sort of speculation that these are spectral wargs or ghosts of wargs or not quite their wargs, illusions or whatever. But this scenario is fantastic. It's a huge amount of wargs, and I recommend using the Hobbit wargs now because they look, look really, really good against the Fellowship. First time we've got the Fellowship together, and it's great to have another scenario with the Fellowship. 
yeah, this is the Fellowship Assembled. This is their first battle together, and I've, I, I'm really disappointed, actually, that this wasn't in the movie because this is a, a really iconic scene with Gandalf able to just uh, show his full badassery. And yeah. going against Ghost Warks would be really damn cool. Yeah. And this is, it's Legolas and Gandalf. It's their moment to shine. It's, we've upgraded from pine cones. We've got enchanted flaming arrows now. You know, let's do this. The board itself is boring as anything. Double the terrain on it straight out, but it's it's a fun. I, I always enjoy this scenario. I think it's one of those ones where you've got an unlimited amount of bad guys that just come. And uh, is it a time limit that's the objective? I think it is offhand. Yes, the evil side wins if five or more members of the fellowship are slain. The good side wins if the game ends before that happens. So, uh, turn is... eleven onwards if priority is drawn. Game ends. There you go. So you're forced to, to go at it, and, and it's a really good way to learn the Fellowship. And it's I like these scenarios where the evil side basically doesn't care about casualties. They just throw them in and try for that, that chance. And there's a few of them in there, but it's good fun. Put plenty of terrain on the board, and this one is, yeah, it's a whole lot of fun. So as I said, this was just before they entered Moria, so I think it's time for some Moria terrain. Yeah, so here we go. They've started off uh, with the gate, I think it is, or it's just a, it's just a rock wall, a generic rock wall. But you could quite easily build a door in it, and you could make that the door of Durin. Perhaps. If you if you get down to step four, they do cut a hole in their wall. Ah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, so I've that... actually got this exact wall made. It's in my garage. It's usable, but it looks kind of funny. So I would recommend getting some rock textures on it if you can. Um, even just getting some foil and some some like wood putty or something and just, just give it some crinkles in it because it, it looks very bubbly. I have seen some amazing Eastgate dioramas. There is some fantastic yeah. ones, yeah. So have a look for them and see see some Moria terrain. And that brings you on into this quite a unique scenario, actually. Scenario 11, the Watcher in the Water. Okay, what's the evil side in this scenario? It is, of course, six tentacles because six tentacles. there is no actual Watcher model. We don't know what it looks like, so, so we're just going to use the, the tentacles. this is one of the first website-only releases, six tentacles. I wonder if it's still available. If not, you can make tentacles pretty damn easily. But basically, the tentacles in this one grab at the Fellowship, try and pull them in the water, and they just keep coming back. You, your board's a small board, which I really like. It's a two-foot-by-three-foot board, mostly lake with an entrance. And I think Frodo starts in the water with the tentacles, if I recall correctly. I might be wrong on there. Frodo with one tentacle in the water yep. in contact, and then uh, the rest of the tentacles a bit further back. I actually like the old white dwarf version of this better, where you actually have the head for it as well and some more tentacles playing with it. But it's it's a good fun scenario. The Watcher in the Water scenario is a great fun. It's it's wacky as well. I'm sure that sculpt, the uh, the full Watcher body where it was rising up out of the water, you would find that in one of the best of White Dwarf books, maybe? I think it is. I think it's in one of the best of it. I've, I've done that in Shadow of the Past before, so if you go back and listen to that, I believe it's on its own. It's not in one of the main episodes. So Shadow in the Past, I did Best of White Dwarf, and I believe it's in, in one of those. It's one of the scenarios that has a few different variations of it, but this was one of the better ones, I think. And it's nice that the Fellowship can't actually kill the tentacles. They just keep coming back or get pushed back or... Or whatever. So that that's an interesting one. You always have the six tentacles going. And you're going to make some more terrain, aren't you? Yep, we're moving on to building Balan's tomb. So we've got some staircases, some some styrofoam rocks. Moving on, more painting guides. We've got trolls, we've got wags, we've got tentacles. The Balan's tomb is very simple. They've used the terrain out of the Mines of Moria box set as the detail. And they've got these basically just blocks of grey that they've used as a border. I'm not entirely sure if you can move onto these or not. You can probably play it either way you want and balance it out. I've made this board as a standalone, and I actually blacked them out and made just walls to frame it. 
so I've got the door effect. But you could definitely make it as a ledge that you walked on. It's not really clear what it is. The board's a little bit plain. You can do some detail work with it. But Balan's Tomb is such an iconic scenario. It's well worth giving it a go. You've got the cave troll. You've got the goblins. You've got the fellowship. Mm-hmm. Fellowship usually wins it, but it's good fun and it's it's tense. Yeah. They've modelled their edge with staircases leading up, and that would let you have the hobbits run around there like they did in the movie. So Yeah. I think it would be good to have a few more of them placed around there if you're intending on using it as a ledge. Yeah, I, I think that would be a good idea. Make it really obvious. So either way you go, just make it obvious, and, and you can adjust the scenario. It doesn't really make a huge difference. And you get your hobbits doing their dive attacks against cave trolls. And... So yeah, yeah. This, this is another one of those ones where they, the evil side just keeps coming, and yep. you just got to survive it. Yeah, survive, yeah. survive. They, they're always hard for the evil side, but they're good fun to play. Now, you're going... And this terrain is... Makes sense of your blocks you made before. You're making your rocky outcrop terrains, but you're making them at different heights. So they've got these ones, and the rocky outcrops, why you've got it this this crown shape makes sense, because later on it's going to be holding the blocky parts to make a staircase. So they've got some double use out of these terrain features. It's it's not a bad way of doing it. It is. It's a good way of doing it, especially. And they they're, this chasm way is quite clever. You've just put a bit of black. Then you've got a nice double-page photo of pretty much the fellowship running along this terrain you've just built with all these goblins hanging around in the background. What scenario are we up to now? Scenario 13. 13. The escape from Dwarodolf. So basically you've got lots of goblins chasing the fellowship and they have to, is it, they have to go up the stairs or down the stairs? Down the stairs. Down the stairs, yeah. And then you have to run across. It's really clever use of space because they use the whole board and it's a two foot by three foot board again with the uh, the rocks on one side as your your exit door and you start at the top of the stairs. You've got to run down the stairs, you're getting chased by goblins and then you've got to run across the whole ground floor. So clever clever use of that and it's quite a long distance once you add it all up. Yeah, it's not often that a scenario will force you to take a certain path, which obviously it does here. Later on, we'll see it a little bit with uh, the Goblin Town terrain in The Hobbit, but this was the first instance of that, and I think it worked quite well for this scenario. made it very uh, cinematic. I don't recommend jumping off the the terrain. That's a real boring way of playing and killing you guys jumping off. So just run through the path, do it as intended, and then move on to uh, preparing for the next scenario. What do we have to do in preparation, David? We need to put together our Balrog. Put together, put together. So something different here. So instead of a painting guide, it's an assembly guide, complete with green stuff and more green stuff. Using green stuff to fill the gaps on your metal Balrog because your metal Balrog had lots of gaps in it and then how to paint your metal Balrog as well. Unfortunately, as we know, they uh, did the fire backwards. Yeah, I know. I hate this. I I did it as well when I was young and I actually had to trade out my old Balrog because I couldn't stand the paint job. That's how you can tell it's magical. Yeah. Um, what we're talking about is fire. The hottest part is the, the lightest part. Clear white, maybe, maybe yellow. But they've got the hottest part being the top of the flame, where it's the opposite. The hottest part is the bottom of the flame. And as the flame gets exposed to more air, it, it gets cooled. Yeah, and becomes darker. Yeah, it becomes darker. So oftentimes you do that the opposite way. You start with the white at the bottom and build it up to, to through red and then maybe a bit of black at the end to represent the, the smoke coming off it. I've heard someone describe that as reverse highlighting. Yeah, it, yeah. it is a way to do that. You start, your base coat's white, and you build it up backwards. You could do it the other way, but that's that's a good way of doing it. So the Balrog, you essentially paint inside out. You paint him white and then go to a dark color, which is not too hard because you can almost like do a wet brush, which is like a dry brush with a bit more paint over the top of black, and it's very forgiving. Brings us to scenario 14, the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. The Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Uh, unfortunately, the board doesn't really make this epic 
battle look the part. It's simplistic. It works. It's your four by four board with the chasm. You could do some seriously good modeling on it, but it's it's the fellowship running, 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 running from the Balrog because you don't want that guy to catch you. Everyone knows this moment. Everyone's seen this in the films or read it in the books. So it, you're never quite going to be able to do it justice with the time that they have to make this sort of terrain and, and the level that they expect you to be able to uh, make it at. But, yeah, there's so many opportunities with this. There's so many different ways of doing it. And it's it's really simple as well. Like, the scenario is always going to work no matter what way you do it. Yeah, I do like the scenario. It's all about getting over the bridge and then breaking it, essentially, which is a, a good way of doing it. Swords are no more use here. Mm. Now we, we're out of Moria. We've moved out of Moria. We're going to Lothlorien, and we've got a nice little scenario here where the Fellowship... Fellowship was getting off the grave for some reason. Bit of a typo there in the books. Yeah. But you've got... Yeah, copy and paste... You've got Haldir and some elves with bows and blades against goblins, wags, goblin chieftains and wild wags. So you're running through the forest, across your river again. Your board looks the same, but this one breaks up the way the Fellowship plays because you've got some allies. Not many, but enough. And if you'd played this as a campaign, you'd have probably lost Gandalf in the last scenario. So that would have taken him out anyway. It's a typo. Don't, don't try and justify it with the campaign logic. We they've, can try. They straight out stuffed it up. Take Gandalf the Grey out. He's, he's not with them. At the moment, he has fallen into shadow. Yes, how sad, how sad. Hey, but at least the Balrog didn't pass. The Balrog did not pass. The bridge was broken. Urukai Scouts, the old metal Urukai Scouts painting guide. No, no different from the other painting guide, but it's great to have a new troop type. And an M1 head seeing seat. With, once again, with photocopy these in large times a million and make your own seeing seat. Simple seeing seat, but a good looking seeing seat. Yeah, this is another one that's really nicely designed along with Eamon Hen. Yes. An old square Warhammer bases. So if you're a Warhammer player, you've got no use to those square bases anymore. So turn them into Eamon Hen. And of course, you've got a ton of them lying around, as we of know. Course, well, you just chopped them off. So yeah, you've got lots of them. I've actually gone through in depth on these on our last episode, these last three scenarios. So just to go into detail on them, basically it's a three-parter where it... The, it builds up to Boromir's death. So you've got, first of all, Frodo and Aragorn running past who will get the help of Legolas and Gimli. Use your old ring rules for this one. Then you've got Boromir's redemption, where most of the time Boromir can't hold off the Urukai from grabbing Merry and Pippin. And then the final scenario is the break of the Fellowship, where Boromir dies and the Urukai do their best to try and kill another member of the Fellowship or two, and they just can't do it. So, good scenario. I really love the scenarios, and I did a scenario spotlight on them. They are great. And that's 18 scenarios in total, so a huge number of scenarios, a great number of scenarios. And then they tell us how to link the scenarios. Okay, so on to linking the scenarios, which is where you get your general um, campaign special rules, which is you're weary with much toil and you're fallen into shadow, where pretty much they give you the rundown on how to play it through as an 18-scenario campaign. Yeah, what happens if a member dies, how you get back all of your reserves, how uh, which, which characters carry across to different scenarios, uh, what the effects of those... Uh, results might be yeah it's got all the different stuff in there yeah and it's it's really tough as the good play to do this because you only get a few refresh points rivendell and some others so this is this is definitely hard mode if you want to have a go at it i actually don't particularly like doing it this way i prefer to do one scenario at a time and and then because you end up using almost all your resources every scenario so having to use it for the whole campaign is tricky and you end up the scenarios themselves being pretty easy but it is a good good hard mode and it, it does add a lot of narrative to it this brings us into the stat profiles section of the book. So you've got Glyphendal, Gildor, and 
pretty much so on. Bombadil, Goldberry, Barrowites, all data participants. This was because a lot of these models were released in this book or they weren't available in the main rule book. So they've added them in here. They've got a profile summary there. And then an interesting page after that with materials. Yep, inside of the back cover, we've got photos of ready mix filler and Citadel modeling saws and other interesting things. Yeah, there. it's your shopping list for terrain. If you want to go get the terrain, you go and you, you rip this page out of your wonderful book that you treasure, and then you go to Bunnings and you get all this stuff. So I've gone for a long time talking about this book, so very quickly I'm going to talk about an event that we're planning. Matt and I are absolutely excited about. We're going to run this book as an event day. So instead of running a tournament, I'm not that interested in running a tournament at the moment, we're going to get the House of War all booked up, which is a new venue near me. I'm going to set up as many boards so we can play all these scenarios simultaneously, have them all go in there, basically get all our club to provide the models for them and, and get the setup. And then people just come in and we, we make a little A4 laminated page of all the scenario rules with including our recommended changes in there. And people can either bring their own fellowship or their own wraiths in or use ours and have a go at these scenarios. I think it's going to be wonderful day of gaming we're going to tell you how long it takes to play them so if you want to play a 20 minute scenario you can play a 20 minute one if you want to play an hour scenario you can do that and we'll probably have a painting competition for the best fellowship we'll might, probably... might to do something like a door prize just for everyone that brings along a fellowship just so there's some incentive because look it should be enough incentive in itself really to get yourself a painted fellowship because oh, everyone should have i'm, I'm yeah. gonna have to paint a fellowship now yeah you get to, <laughs> get to use it if you want to paint your own balrog and bring it on the, the bridge of Kazadoom, go for it uh, i want to do a bingo card where it's got things like survive the Balrog, and you tick the bingo card box, or sign it off for your opponent, kill Frodo, sign it off, win a scenario with the ring wraith, sign it off, and then the person who's got the fullest bingo card at the end can get a prize, or maybe just after you get a certain amount, get 10 ticks, get a prize, maybe we do a random draw afterwards, or something like that, the the people who have higher numbers, or uh, yeah, some, something like that, I, I don't want people to get too obsessed with the ticks, but I think it's something else that's nice. Because what we don't want is people fudging the scenarios. But it should be a really fun day, and I'm really looking forward to this. So watch your space for details if you're local. Um, obviously, I'll put it on local forums and things, but this is going to be exciting. And if it works, if this scenario day works, we're going to do it for the Two Towers and the Return of the King Journey books as well. So that, that's exciting. Now, this book, I don't know about you guys, but I love this book. If there's any book you want to go back in the past, go back to 2005 and get, this is the one. Do get this. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, this book, it, you get so much use out of it. It is fantastic. It's well worth it. It's a wonderful book. And it's still... Look, the painting guides are a bit dated. This The terrain stuff is great if you don't have a terrain set. If you do have a terrain set, it's probably nothing special. But the scenarios are absolutely wonderful. It's a good book. It's a fantastic way to start off your Lord of the Rings journey, for sure. This month in Building Middle-Earth, we've got, well, probably the second of our, uh, our construction type segments this time. We're talking about basing, basing the models, so the actual bases that the models go on. And I've had quite a few questions about this. This was prompted from, I put up my Dale Army on the Facebook page and got some feedback on it, but most of the feedback was about my bases. And I did some, some simple techniques, but also some reasonably complex techniques. So we've got Matt and David, we're going to talk about how we do basing and give some ideas for how you can improve your bases or maybe make a more efficient way of doing them if you don't want to improve, you just want to get faster. So firstly, 
I want to talk about the very, very basics. And this one's we've had for a long time. It's the old paint the rim one color or leave it black if you want and put a whole bunch of flock or static grass on. So basically all you do is grab some PVA, put it on the base, dip it in a, a thing of static grass or flock, usually get it at a motor rail, railway store or a gaming store has, has heaps of them. Choose one color. Often ends up looking like a bowling green if you go too bright green, but it's a simple way of doing that. It adds some color to your bases and it's it's effective. And it's still one step up from the battle games in Middle Earth. Let's just paint the base goblin green. Oh, that looked disgusting, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's always going to be better than nothing. Uh, I think it, even if you are intending on keeping the rim of the base black, still paint it black. It just looks a slightly better than just leaving it completely. And you often spill paint on it at some point in yeah. time, so it's, it's a good idea to go over it in whatever colour you want. I've found I prefer a dark brown on the rim because it makes it look like you've painted it, whereas black, you've painted it black, but people can't tell that, so... I do often give it a colour, just mm-hmm. something. I do as well. I'm, I'm a dark brown fan, but I've seen effective different colours, and I guess you, you want something that, that doesn't take away too much from your model. So some people like the black because it's it's got that sort of negative space where you, you don't pay any attention to it. Some people like a colour, so if they're doing an underground one, they'll put it a grey or, or something else. Mm-hmm. Some people I've seen actually, for heroes, paint like a gold rim or something to actually make them stand out mm-hmm. so they can be spotted, which isn't a bad idea for something like a Gondor hero where good luck trying to find out which is the hero because it looked very similar to the the generic troops and if you have your rims easily identifiable across the table you can tell where which models are yours which models are theirs on the same token don't paint your entire army with their rims gold it doesn't look great i've made that mistake in the past and yeah that painting over those was uh one of the most satisfying things i've ever done when i realized how terrible they looked yeah so rim static grass really simple technique don't need a huge amount of static grass it'll actually last quite a long time so i recommend buying it in a tub or a big bag and it'll last you for a long time sometimes you can mix the colors as well so some people might like actually grab all their static grasses and flocks and just put it all in one bag and then you get a blend so that gives you a uniform color or you can dab some pva and dip one color in let it dry dab some more pva and dip another color in as well to get some variations and some some different colors in there which is once again really simple to do because all you're doing is grabbing a, an old brush, putting PVA on and dipping it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the patches of colours. I've, I've used that before and I think it looks pretty uh, pretty decent. There's no evidence of any lawn bowling greens on Middle Earth. So yeah. So sometimes I like to leave the some of the areas without static grass. And for these ones, I like to make sure I've got some sort of texture on the base. So the most simple one is to do a ground texture. Yeah, so usually I'll just use the uh, gravel or the uh, modelling sand. That's what you want to use there. Uh, I've probably used that for the majority of my bases over, over the course of my hobbying life. Um, you also have some texture paints as another option, uh, which I haven't used before. I've used those. There's some that the Games Workshop makes, which are basically coloured sand in paint, essentially. And they're, I find them reasonably hard to apply, but they're very useful, I find, for rebasing. So if I've already done a model and I don't want to go through the whole undercoating and all that sort of stuff and, and glue it on again and have, have problems... I'll often rebase a model and say, okay, I want now brown earth on this one. So I'll just grab it, grab it and paint it over the top of what I've got or paint it over some sections to add another variation. Uh, it, the advantage is it's got the sand in there, so you don't have to worry about that step, but it's expensive. I think the trick when you're using the sort of textured paints is every brand is different. Some of them don't really have enough texture for what we're trying to do. So you end up with some bits of gravel and some bits that are just flat. Others have too much and they're a bit bulky, so they 
shrink when they dry and you end up with cracks running through it, which if that's what you're after, can look good. If it's not what you're after, it can look sort of average. Yeah, there's a crackle effect as well, which I'll go through soon. But mm. I've also got on the texture paint, I've got a basically a, a four liter tub that I got from my local hardware store. And this one, it's in a desert color now, and that's really great for, for basing terrain. So it's basically exactly the same as this texture paint that's in the little tiny pots. And if I wanted to, I could easily use that on the models. But I use something that's very slightly different. It's actually called uh, white pumice, and I get it from Vallejo. And basically, it's a rubberized sand. It's water, water soluble, but once it's dry, it doesn't, doesn't change. Like PVA does when you wet it again, disappears. This one doesn't. But it's really great because I just paint it on and it gives me that texture straight away. I used to glue sand on, which I know that some people do, where you get the PVA, you glue the sand on. And I found that I like to do that before I paint the model because it's you can be as messy as you want. The problem with PVA is that if you do it before you paint the model and you drip a wash on or something like that, it eats into the PVA, it wets it again and makes a whole mess. So I actually prefer this for ease and convenience and it dries pretty quickly. I found... Because I used the sand and the PVA and I got the sand out of a pile that we had outside so it's got bits of leaf in it and it adds a little extra texture, the sort of unwashed sand. But yes, it comes off like anything once if during handling until you get a couple coats of paint on it. So if you undercoat it, then yeah, it gives it a little extra strength but still not quite as good as the textured paint. Do you put texture on your bases, Matt? Yeah, I tend to use the sand. I, I think... As David says, once you've uh, sealed it with the paint, it tends to be perfectly fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I prefer it to the idea... Well, I prefer the look to the texture paints. I, I haven't used them. I've only seen other people use them, but I, I do like the the look of the actual sand being on the base. The difference here for most people, I guess, is that I when I assemble my model, I want to, I apply my texture as well then. So what I normally do is I apply essentially the sand texture using the pumice I said, but also maybe get a little bit of cork that in the shape of rocks and glue it on. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm going to have any mortal piece, which is I'll go into soon as well, um, I'll add those into the, the piece. So that's the difference. A lot of people want to base their models afterwards, and that's where the sand is perfect for because you can put it on afterwards. I have done that, and you really want to make sure you give it the full 24 hours to dry with the PVA and unless you're using a different glue because last thing you want it to be partially to dry and you knock bits off or whatever. And you might want to give it another coat of PVA after you've put it on. So put it on, let it dry, and then give it another coat on top of it might be the way to seal it. With the adding extra texture in the PVA, some a trick that I've found that I like is we've got this sort of broken rubbly stuff. It's too th- coarse to use as a general texture, but you apply just a few bits of it, then you apply your sand over the top, and it just gives you that variation the ups and downs. Yeah, that's a good idea to, to add the variation because the other thing with sand is sometimes it can become too uniform as well, so it doesn't have that natural variation in it yeah. and it ends up looking flat anyway. Which is where you leave your sand outside for a couple of weeks until it picks up all the variation. Yeah, yeah get some get some bits of wood in it, mm-hmm. bits of rocks and things. That will work perfectly. Add some mixed herbs and whatever. Mixed herbs are a good idea, actually. Uh, have you used mixed herbs? I haven't, no. <laughs> it's one of the ones I've been meaning to get round to, but just... Haven't yet. I've heard a lot of people use them. I haven't, my, haven't myself. Anyway, they're great for temporary uh, basing. So if you want to, say, put a diorama together or a, a display board or something like that, you can just sprinkle some on and blend things. I, I don't know how it's the, um, the actual herbs will last long term. Mm-hmm. I think it looks good short term. Like You get some nice colors. You get some nice smells. <laughs> but whether or not you just seal it with PVA and it, it keeps it together, I'm actually not sure about that. So it's worth experimenting with because herbs are pretty cheap. 
I have got some like interesting seed sort of things that I use because they're growing outside my front, you know, door as leaves and cactuses and that sort of thing. And they change color over time, but luckily for me, they've changed color into a color I actually like better. So that was lucky. But if you're using natural ingredients, just be aware they will change on you. Absolutely. Now, uh, what I see a lot of people doing is adding little bits of models to their bases. So when you when you get your base in there, you might add a shield from another model. You might add a bit of a sword. You might add a, a severed arm or a severed head or a whole model body or something like that. Have you done this, David? I have done it in the past. Not recently, however, because I have the problem of you end up in in what... From one point of view, you've got the why is that arm crawling along behind him as, you know, my captain runs along. The other problem is it's downright tricky to sometimes paint the blood so it doesn't look like you just got blood red and tip some on the base. Yeah, actually, the very first conversion I made was an Urukai captain standing on top one of his dead followers, which I was very proud of at the time, and I probably still would be if I, if I could find it in my collection somewhere. Uh, as you say with the blood, yeah, it's it's hard to get it realistic. There is a paint by GW, as I understand it. I haven't got it, but uh, it does make quite realistic-looking blood. Bile red tends to work. Um, there's there's actually a specific one. Yeah. I think it's blood for the blood god at the moment, okay. and I've been using it on my orcs a lot recently, and I'm experimenting with how much to put on. Like, I think it works really well if you just dab a little bit on and sort of... On dark surfaces, it works really well to to blend it. So the end of weapons and things, and I've started dripping some on the base. It basically it's a spot red with it's it's a little bit transparent, so you can see the color underneath it. But it's also a little bit glossy, so it actually does help and gives a good red effect. It looks like reasonably fresh blood. So what you might want to do is add a little bit of brown or a little bit of black to the center of it when you when you you actually apply it. And it just kills some of the shine, and it also means that it looks a little bit older, some of the blood. So depending on what you're trying to get there, that's that's a good effect. And I do like that one. On the, I was asking about the the pieces. I do a lot of pieces on the bottom of my bases, and I quite often get people commenting that how it kind of looks silly because yeah, there's there's an arm following the model around over the whole battlefield, or in the case of the Mumak, there's a whole series of dead bodies that travel around with it and are nowhere else on the battlefield. I think the Spectre Underwater was a particularly favourite one. Yeah. Gulliver. Got, yeah, Gulliver. So I've got my Gulliver, and it's basically perched on a rock that's in this pool of water with a bunch of dead marsh spectres underneath it. So I've got an elf in there and possibly something else. I can't remember exactly. Matt will know more because he's probably seen that model more I've than I have. I've seen that model many times, yes. Yes. But it's... Yeah, you get the comments that people don't like that. I'm actually a big fan of it. And once you put it on the gaming table, my brain does something and just says, yep, this makes sense to me, even though it doesn't make any sense. And it's like the, the model in the same pose. Like Aragorn's always in the same pose. When you're playing a game, it doesn't matter that he's always got his sword up no matter what he's doing. He's hiding behind a rock with his sword waving in the air and he's, he's jumping across the building with his sword waving in the air and he's talking to his friend with his sword waving in the air. I think it does work better for the centerpiece models like the Mumark or the Guadalvere because that is the central focus. Everything else when you're looking at the board moves outwards from there. So the Mumark, yeah, has got its blokes with him and then everybody else has just moved when you're looking at it. Yeah, I agree. I I think you're absolutely right, Jeremy, that it, it doesn't really make any difference to the game, does it? And it just looks fantastic when you've got them all lined up like that. So why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Even more extreme, though, like in my Dale army, I sculpted wooden planks on it. And these models rarely fight where there's wooden planks. They're, most of the time, they're on a grassy board or 
somewhere else or because they're Dale, they, they tend to like defensive obstacles. So they end up in ruins or something with their wooden planks. And I've done, I've blended some ground on some of them. So some of them are just entirely wooden planks. Some of them have wooden planks with a bit of ground next to them and some of them majority ground. And that does something that, that no matter what surface you're on, you see some of the models matching and some of them not matching and your brain just sort of convinces you that it's okay. That's interesting because I did uh, sculpt my, well, not sculpt, sort of half sculpt my uh, Gondor's bases with uh, a sort of white bricks uh, intended to be inside Minas Tirith. And yeah, it, it usually clashes with pretty much every board. So it, it you know, it, it doesn't look fantastic in that respect, but when I actually line them up as an army, I think it looks fantastic. As so, a display piece, it does look yeah. fantastic. And I'm a big fan of the way you did your bases because you've got a really good technique. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, that technique. That technique was just using some chicken wire and some green stuff, just putting the green stuff on the bases. Of course, you have to cover the holes if there are any, if there are any slots or whatever. And just pressing the chicken wire onto the green stuff and you get some very even, nice squares. You do need to use some kind of lubricant on the green stuff. You have to use some Vaseline or something similar because otherwise you will end up with uh, some chicken wire filled with green stuff and nobody wants that. Anytime you use green stuff, use a lubricant for any surface it touches because it sticks to everything and it is a pain to get rid of. The chicken wire worked really well, I thought. It was, it was such a simple way of doing those instead of just going and sculpting the lines, which isn't that hard, just pressing press molded chicken on there. I actually like covering up the holes with masking tape because okay. that saves you on your putty and that gives you a nice flat surface to work with as well. So that's a tip I do. Cut a little triangle of, of masking tape and put it over the holes and then base it up. Just on this chicken wire, we're talking that really fine square sort yes, of mesh. very small. Yeah. Okay. I just live, you know, further out east, so chicken wire yeah, not, is that not sort of like hexa, wire, no. you know, <laughs> hexagonal sort of thing that the entire model would fit straight through. Yes, you definitely don't want to use that. That would no. not be much good. I've done a similar thing with the chicken wire. I actually had the, the biggest stuff, and I used it for a whole board. So I, I was in a real hurry for a tournament, so I had a basically a, an MDF board. I put the chicken wire on, taped the sides of it, where I was going to actually end up putting some texture on there anyway, and then just got a white spray can and sprayed it over it, which I had a black undercoat on. So what it did was it gave me a, a tile look very, very quickly. And because the chicken wire is actually exactly the same size as my board, all my boards lined up as well. So I got the wire pattern all lined up and it took me minutes Fantastic. to do that. So that's I'm a big fan of that. But I never used it for green stuff, which is a great idea. So normally the green stuff, I just roll it on there, get my sculpting tool out and just like do planks or something simple. It's a really great way to practice your sculpting because... On the base, if it looks bad, you just put a bit of grass on top of it and it's fixed. Yes, that's the beauty of it, isn't so it? So any mistakes, just put a little bit of grass on them and, and you're all good. So it's a great way to experiment with the sculpting, get your skills up. Next level of that, I guess, is that basically making a, a mold for your bases and putting using that to, to indent your green stuff, which is similar to what Matt did. Matt and I picked up some basically basing tiles from a company called Basius, which we got on a Kickstarter. Now, this is one where basically you, you put your green stuff on your base. You put lots and lots and lots and lots of lubricant on that green stuff because I've actually been hit with a bad thing where I've got some green stuff stuck in the actual molds and I can't get it out, which is unfortunate, but it's only a small area. But basically, it's a hard resin tile from Basius. From, oh, sorry, it's called Basius. It's from wargamesbakery.co.uk. It's the place where we've got it. And we've, they've got things like swamps and dungeons and all kinds of things. And you just press your tile on there and you can do really big bases and also very small bases. 
So you get a, a quite a decent effect. They're clearly hand sculpted. So I, I put them on there, and the person who's made them has just sculpted the whole square and away they go. So they've got a little bit of like like handmade look to them. The wood and stuff is hand sculpted, but it looks really good and it's really simple to do. But use so much Vaseline. Use a lot of lubricant, or else you'll never ever get your base out. Because you want your green stuff to stick to your base, but not to the mold. And the mold's got a lot of things to grab it. When I first saw them, I thought that these look fantastic. They've got a, a, something for basically every kind of army that you could imagine in, in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And they come double-sided as well, so they've got a little bit of variation between the same kind of area, but a few different little things. I think we got one with a mouse on it. That was the first one I chose. Yeah, there's, there's some really clever stuff. Things like the, the mice and things are actually hard to get the mold going and the chains and things. So you often end up with, with bad sculpts there. So I actually recommend still putting a little bit of grass or um, a dead leaf or something like that over the top of them because sometimes you'll get some bad molds. But they're pretty good. I would have loved it to be a, a like a hard rubber tile rather than an entirely solid tile because I think it would have helped getting out of some of the, the really hard-to-remove areas. So... The product itself is really good, but it's got some some stuff that I think they can improve on. Yeah, that is what I expected when we first got it. So yeah, so did I. I was really I had it in my head because I've done a lot of rubber mold stuff. And on that, what I've been doing recently is the instant mold for almost everything, which I've talked about before. It's basically a a, a compound that you heat up and you press it on something and it creates a, a mold for it, and you can reuse it lots and lots. So I've been doing that for for things like uh, bricks and rocks and all kinds of things. I've actually been been moulding rocks at times, and then I pour a bit of plaster in and then pull the mould off. So I've got some really nice plaster rocks with some some really good textures in there, and it's super strong. So there's lots of ways to do that. I can't remember if we've talked about the um, Here Starts moulds before, but there, yeah, the flexible rubber used for bricks, rubble, ruins. We made a board out of them, and then we had a whole bunch of these bricks left. So they're slowly getting broken up and put onto bases as and when I get an army that would make sense to be in a ruined area. Yeah, I've got a whole box of basing materials, and I've got things like little tree branches in there and chains and mm-hmm. rocks and all kinds of things, which are great to put on bases. And I tend to, to grab a, like, I limit the materials I can put on for an army. So I say, this army, I'm going to have some gravel, I'm going to have some rocks, and I'm going to have some some weapons on it. So I'll put those on. Or I'm going to have some planks, or I'm going to have some some chains and bits of wood so it looks like it's something's being constructed and you get that theme going across so you try and base your whole army so they're all got similar techniques and it tends to be good although i have seen an exception to this of late um mason's army for masters i don't remember the basing was very different he had some models on snow bases some on ground bases and he blended them by making a display board that had some areas of melted snow and some areas with ruins and things and it turned out to be a really fantastic effect and and he pulled that off really well. Yeah, it works if you fully intend it to be uh, set up in that manner. I mean, yeah, it, it's not going to look great moving around the board. We always talk about it's always going to be a little bit funny moving around the board no matter what you do with your army. But yeah, Mason's looked fantastic once it was set up, and he, he got my vote at Masters, so yeah. Yeah, so in general, the more you put into your bases, potentially the more clashes you have with your boards. Mm-hmm. But I think it, the models actually, it really frames them well. And the bases are what you see from a distance. So if your bases stand out, if you put the effort in, you can look across the table and go, that army looks good. You get up close and you go, maybe not. But for most people, they look at and go, that looks amazing. Now, I'm a big fan of bases. Uh, my theory at the moment is as many textures, as many colors as possible. 
I get a lot of different plant foliage. I've got heaps of different flocks and I've bought them from all different companies. And every time at a train store or a gaming store, I'll just buy some more basic materials. I'm a big fan of the tufts of grass that you can get now. Um, I get mine from a company from Germany called Mini Nature, but there's there's other companies that do it. I think Army Painter does it. And you basically glue the tuft on. Was it Miniature? Miniature. Yeah. I think you said Mini Nature. I've always heard it pronounced Mini Nature, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's, Matt's, Matt's that's probably just right. what we've said. Okay. That, that's fine. It's, uh, well, Matt's going to look that up while we do it and it. correct me. On, that's why we've got him on. This is fantastic. <laughs> So that's what I'm here for. While you're correcting my pronunciation of said company, the the tufts you glue them on, you can get them in all different colors. Like they've got about twenty different ones, and they say different seasons, which is great. They've also got like grass that you well, not grass. They've got foliage you're supposed to put on trees, but I put it on my bases, and it ends up looking like flowers or like my favorite mm-hmm. is the cherry blossom. So you get cherry blossom foliage, and I put it on the ground. It gives me some nice white color to the bases, which looks really great, and and breaks it up. I also use uh, leaf litter that I got from Secret Weapon Miniatures, and I'm not sure they still sell this, but basically it's it's actually it's another organic material. It's a dried plant, and you can get it painted, and basically you just glue it on the base. It looks like leaves. I did that on my Dale Army, which looks fantastic. What do you do in terms of colours, David? In terms of colours, we stopped by... Well, my brother and I stopped by a model railway store uh, a number of years ago, and we brought the bulk... Um, packs of flock in about four different colours and they're probably going to last forever so we just we've got a de- we've got a dead grass a green grass an extra green grass and a sort of somewhere in the middle grass and you can just make any combination of grass that you want yeah the fantastic part about that is all your armies are going to look like they blend together so if you decide to put your morrier and your mortal together or your your gondor and your rohan together they they match on the battlefield whereas if you get too clever like, I've mm-hmm. done this before with my, my dwarves. I put them on underground bases, mm-hmm. and then I ended up wanting to play scenarios above ground with them, and it really threw me off. Mm-hmm. It can work occasionally. Like, I have played a few games where all my guys are on desert bases, and all of the opponent were on city bases. And just from a distance, you could see, like, the, sh- the color sort of curling around as one side sort of tried to outflank the other, and... Yeah, that, that is an advantage as well to have very different bases because you can pick them out. I know that I've had the area where people base in a similar technique to me and you can't find out whose models yeah. who because you do see the base from far yeah. away. Moran and, Orcs, Moran and Orcs versus Gondor when oh, they're both yeah. based the same. Well, that's when a running scenarios happens with me because I do base them the same mm-hmm. and trying to spot them is, is somewhat tricky. I've tried to go a bit more extreme on the painting to be able to solve that. I tend to go with uh, pretty minimalist. I, I just use one or two different things and, and try and make it stand out uh, one, one particular part of my bases. So I'll go, for instance, with the Gondor one I was talking about earlier, I've just got the the plain bricks uh, layout with the sculpt and then just a little tuft of uh, grassy sort of flowery um, bit of terrain just to go along with it, just to stand, make it stand out a little bit. And I feel like it works pretty well. I have thought about adding more stuff to that, but I, I think it works fairly well the way it is. With some other things, I tend to add maybe just some uh, cork rocks, just something to change up the color a little bit. And yeah, that's, that's how I tend to do it. I'm a massive fan of putting foliage on almost everything you do, even if it's just dead grass or something, even if it's underground, a little bit of dead grass I think works really well. I've fallen into the trap in the past where I thought it's underground or it's in the barren wasteland, so don't put any foliage at all. 
and it never looks quite right. You've got to put something on to break it up. And I think it's the texture that does it. That very fine static grass or the fine tuft of grass really brings out your bases. So I guess that's our suggestion. Matt, did you work out the pronunciation of that? I can't find it, unfortunately. I have failed. Okay, well, that's all right. I'm sure someone will correct us on it. We've got some German listeners, so hopefully they can help me out with that. Peter, that's you. I have a question for you two. When you're basing a large number of models and you're putting the flocks on, do you end up forming a pattern when you're trying to decide on how to realistically apply a randomized pattern of flock? Or? I try to make it as random as possible. So some, I, I pick the amount of like spots I'll put it on. So maybe one, two, three, four. And then I'll try and put it at different places around the bases for each model. I try to randomize, but I find when I'm not thinking, all my, like, I put rocks on them with a bit of cork, and it always ends up in the same spot. It's like right in front of the model, equal distance of the two legs, or or slightly to the left, or occasionally behind the model in the same spot. And it's it's actually hard to break it up. And what I've done to break it up of late is actually raise the model up on the base. So what I do is instead of putting the model entirely in the base, I'll raise it up a couple millimeters or quite a lot if I want to and bulk that up. And then I've got a lot more freedom in the basing because I can put the rocks under the models if I feel like I can break it around. And that extra variation in height, even though it's only a couple millimeters, really makes the army look like uh, natural people rather than everyone uniformly the same height and things. It breaks it up quite a bit. Mm. So that's another thing you could do is, is really before you base it, put the models at slightly different heights. Heroes, I tend to put higher. That actually reminds me a lot of my goblin town. I've done something really similar to that where a lot of my goblins are actually on rocks or a few of them are standing on the ground with the big rocks around them. The Goblin King, all, all of the heroes I put on rocks. And actually reminded me a little bit of when you were saying with uh, Underground, how you don't like, uh, sorry, how you feel you still need some foliage. With that, I actually just made some tiny little green stuff mushrooms, just painted them a kind of yellowish color. And I feel like it, it did that. It did that job of breaking up the colors a bit. That's a so. perfect example. Yeah, mm. some, some real underground growth and glowing things. Oh, and uh, just some... Some sort of really light greenish flock works as a sort of lichen type thing. Yeah. Reason that I asked is I have realized that if I'm basing one model, it's fine. Two or three, still I can still get them random. After about three, it ends up with one one blob of grass near each foot, one behind the model, a different color blob between the first two blobs, one mushroom to the left, or cactus in the event of a desert vase. And after about four, yeah, it becomes a literal systematic, this is how I am going to randomize it until I get up to about 12, and then I realize I've been following a system, so you get one random one at 12, then it goes back to the system from there on out. Yes, you've figured out the most random placement of yes. all the different things, so you just keep doing the same thing it's, over It's when again. you come up with a set pattern of randomized numbers, it just sort of loses that, you know, sparkle. Yeah, and do you think anyone ever notices that when looking at your army? Yes. <laughs> that, that's why I'm not afraid to bring it up here, because if I know if I don't, someone else will. Fair enough. Yeah, I've heard a lot of complaints about your army and your sub-randomization abilities. Okay, well, let's wrap up this segment. That was fantastic. So that went on for a good amount of time. Lots of ideas. If we've missed anything, let us know, because I always want to hear about more basing techniques, and I've really taken some pride in the bases and, and enjoy it, and I think hopefully you will as well.
Welcome to the Ent Moot. Now, this is our third Ent Moot, and by now you've realised that this talking slow thing does not last very long. But we get to ask lots of questions. So, first of all, Tom asks us, should model shielding, so when you use the shield ability, which doubles your attacks, should they also get extra defence? So, basically making the models harder to kill as well. David, what do you think? I can see... I can see the idea because if you're trapped and surrounded, a defense boost would be nice, but it already doubles the dice, so I think that's enough of a boost. Doubling the dice is massive, and what I would, wouldn't mind doing is just maybe saying that the shielding is only one extra attack, or like a banner reroll, essentially, something like that, which is mostly equivalent, it's only slightly different, and then consider the extra defense, but... I, I'm actually not a huge fan of these changing strength and defense weapons. Like, I really... The piercing's great from a game point of view, but it's annoying as a, in a, like, calculate before. It slows the game down a bit. So I'm concerned about the changing defense value stuff slowing down the game a bit too much. And the problem is, with one extra offense, it only helps you half the time. I think also with the doubling of the dice rather than just an extra one or a reroll is that... Because you can't strike blows, the more attacks you have, the more benefit you gain, but also the more you have to give up to use it. So you gain an extra two dice, but you're giving up two chances to wound, as opposed to a regular guy gives up one dice, well, gives up one chance to wound, gains one dice. I actually wouldn't mind something like shields giving you two plus defense instead of one plus defense, because that means it always works against everyone. Because the two difference is the key for doing that. So the one extra defense only works half the time. So say for... You're a warrior of Rohan. The the bowmen of War- Rohan have defense four. The shield guys have defense five. Now, if you come up against an Urukai, the shield does a lot. But if you come up against a say a dwarf warrior, well, a dwarf warrior against Rohan, an orc, orc is strength three. It's the same to wound both the 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 warrior and the the shield guy. So that's a bit of a trick one. So maybe. Maybe shielding could give you the, instead of the plus one defense, maybe you can opt to do a plus two defense to guarantee it does something against you. And um, yeah, I guess that's the one plus defense anyway. So it's, it may be onto something. Matt? I don't think it's entirely necessary, to be honest. I've seen what shielding can do, and I think it's it's pretty powerful the way it is. I think increasing the defense may push it over the top a bit and may make it, for a start, it, it just makes for less interesting games in a way. If if it's that easy to really block off someone from doing something, from getting into your face, I don't think it's that great an idea. Yeah, okay, so I think it's a no from all of us. Yeah. I think the idea is that the current shielding rules are better if you have the higher fight value, and when you've got the lower fight value, sometimes it can't be. It's, sometimes it's just not that useful, so I can see the desire for a more a more useful rule, but... I think it's fine how it is. No, I, I really do like it. And on a hero, it's massive. The extra attacks is just absolutely huge and can be very frustrating. Imagine getting extra defense as well and making it almost impossible to kill. That's that's nasty. Okay, Dylan asked us one of our, our most commonly asked questions, which is always fun because there's always different people on. Favorite good model, favorite even model, combination of the story, the effectiveness in the game, and the model... So I want one of each of you, and it doesn't matter if you did it differently last time. It does not matter because every month changes. So at the moment, your favorite good model and favorite evil model, David. Okay, so it's a model, it's a character, it's Fatty Bulger. 
Of course, this is a favourite good model for effectiveness and also for the model because he's got in that, that arms apart. Imagine yeah. Fatty Bulge with his shirt off punching people's heads oh, in like yeah. helm. That would be amazing. No, no, no. It's his I could mo- see him doing that because he's fat, so he yeah. must be strong. It's his moment of glory in the book. Like he's named Fatty, he chooses to stay behind, whatever, and then he's got like this this jog, this run through the night with ring rates chasing after him as he tries to raise the I alarm. would love him to have a rule where basically, as in the book, you place him on the table and then you you go, you roll for the first priority and then just immediately remove him because he stays yeah. at home. He just doesn't doesn't help you no, out. No, no, He runs screaming. He runs away, night. yeah. That would be fantastic. <laughs> and he comes back with an army of hobbits on turn, whatever. Yep. Which, oh, that would be fantastic. 100. Yes. Like when he finally gets... Yes. And then the hobbit cavalry arrive and yeah. Yeah, oh, amazing. And favourite evil model? Favourite evil model? Ah. Uh, Moomark. Of course it is. <laughs> or did they say favourite evil hero? No, no. Moomark Commander. Moomark is, no. <laughs> Moomark's good enough. Yeah, it is hero, but Moomark, Moomark is a... Yeah, go yeah. for it. Matt? Okay, favourite evil model I'll start with is the Tainted. And it's because... Ooh. It is because... When I first saw the ring rates in the movie and the models, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, that's pretty close. That's pretty much what I had in mind when I read the books. When I saw the Tainted, that is exactly what I had in mind. That is a ring rate. Oh, the model is fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I like the game effect. And I, yeah. I, I, I think it adds something to the race. And, yeah. I, think, I think it's really, uh, it really says a lot about what the ring rates really are. That's what the Tainted is. It, it's exactly how they probably would be in that world. So I really, yeah. The rules, the model, it just every part of the Tainted just makes, screams ring rates for yep. me. And yep. what was that? Good model. Oh, favorite good model. I had one in mind. I've got to remember it. Gimli. Gimli. Mm. I'm a short person. There's no getting around that. So while the hobbits are pretty cool, Gimli being a dwarf and just kicking ass day in, day out, that was my favorite character of all time growing up. The models are quite nice. He, he kicks butt in the game. But it'll always be his portrayal in the novels and the in the films that will make me love Gimli. So that's my favorite. Yep. Uh, I'm mine. Uh, first of all, Aemir, because I've just been bombarded with emails of scenarios for Aemir, and I am so excited about this character because there's such a diverse ones. So our next episode, big one for the the main episode, is going to be all about those scenarios. Maybe something else, but I'm super excited about Aemir. This will change every month for me if you ask me the same question. But Aemir for me because of all the wonderful scenarios that you all sent us, and for evil models, I'm gonna look. I'm gonna have to go for Azog because. He is the rock star orc. He is the hero of orcs. He walks around with no shirt on, sort of like Helm, punching that people in the face. Sort of fist. So, yeah, he's just ridiculously powerful. He's ridiculously over the top. I wish he was a, a costume rather than computer graphics in the the actual movie. But other than that, he, that's the only real flaw I have with him. I, I love that character. I love playing with it. I think it adds something to the game. I think it's a it's a really nice model. I do like the the Congo line one that's dancing. I'm a big fan of dancing, and I think it just really does capture it. The model's better than it in real life than it is in the pictures. So Azog for me for the moment for evil, just for all the memories I have of him calling a heroic combat against Gandalf the Grey on full stats, and then moving on to another hero. It's just just wonderful to be able to do that. Uh, then Dylan asked for us each to provide a hint on making terrain. So a hint for terrain making. My hint, I'm going to start with this one just to get the ball rolling. My hint is that make a lot of it. So if you're going to make something, make a lot. If you're going to make a hill, make heaps of hills. If you're going to make a tree, make 100 trees. Well, not 100, but make a lot of trees. So that's my hint, make a lot of terrain. 
my tip is start simple. Make some hedges, make some hills, make some trees. That's all you need to begin with, and you're on your way already. My tip would be try and tie it in with an army you're working on. That way you get twice as much motivation because your motivation for your train spills onto your army and motivation for your army spills onto your train and you end up with a force and a board that go together. Good hints. Okay, favourite scenario from the books. From the books, not from the ones we just got sent that we're about to play through. Favourite scenario from the books. Um, for me, I still am so loving the the Battle of Bywater. I think that's just a fantastic scenario and... Like I fell in love with those hobbits throughout the whole books, and then just to have them return, they got there and and solved. They 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 destroyed the ring. Everything was going well. They spent a couple months partying, doing the farewell tour for the last time ever, and then they go back. And Saruman of all people has taken over the Shire because they they showed some leniency to him. They said, "Oh, don't worry, he, he'll be fine. Just let him go. He's not going to cause any more damage." Yeah, he enslaved all the people. Probably killed a bunch of them with a bunch of ruffian idiots. And then the hobbits actually have to come and take over. And it's just fantastic. In gameplay, it's a siege on a little tiny board that you can move your walls. You can take different areas. You've got to know when to attack. It's just an amazing scenario. It's such a good one. My first thought was Battle of Bywater, but that'd be boring if we doubled up, so I'm going to have to think of another one. Ah, Off the top of my head, Hounds of Sauron is good fun, but we're going to have to go Maggot's Fields. Ah, yes, the, the Maggot's Farm one. Where, yeah, 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 that's yeah. good fun. It's a small one. That's the first time I met you as well. Yes. And then, Matt, your favorite scenario? For me, it's Barrels Out of Bond. I absolutely adored that scenario when we first started playing it, specifically uh, part one, but part two is also very good, and I think it just had a bit of everything. You're floating down a river. You've got hobbits in, uh, dwarves and, and a hobbit in barrels. You've got elves skipping across the top of them. You've got orcs trying to catch them. It just had a bit of everything. Yep. And we've got very few questions left. One is about some Saruman stuff, which we're not going to answer now because we'll answer that in a very uh, near future episode of Know Thine Enemy. We have the next question also from Dylan is, which is the current edition of the rules? So the Hobbit edition of the rules, your favorite edition of the rules. This is a quick one for me. From a gameplay point of view, it is. But from a simplicity point of view, no. I actually prefer the the, the edition before that without the, the weapons and things, just from a simplicity. Although I do love the monster rules. Depends which day of the week it is. Like sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, these monsters are too overpowered. And sometimes like, ah, oh, these axes are too overpowered. But at the moment, I'm quite happy with it. Give me another week and I'll, I'll prefer the other one. But Matt? The current edition is definitely my favourite. It, it improved on a lot of things. It simplified some other things. I, I think it was just a bit of a step up. There's probably still a lot of stuff they, they could still fix, but... Uh... As it stands right now, it's it's pretty good. It's an improvement on previous editions. Now, our last question. Tom asked us, basically, how do heroics work? And I'm going to explain how we do it, and then Matt's going to explain whether I'm right or wrong. So very quickly, at the start of a phase, we say, I'm going to use heroics. And the, you, you ask the other person, are they going to use heroics? And basically, you come to a conclusion between the two of you, we're going to use heroics. So I might say, I'm not going to use heroics at all. And then at that point, we... we We've decided and we say that that's the case. So I say I'm going to use heroics. David says he's not. Then I can call my heroics. Or we both say we're going to use heroics. So, so we do that. Person without priority yeah, calls we, first. For this one, we actually don't worry so much about the order. Like we just declare it and the person can change it. So at this point, nothing's been declared except that we're going to use heroics. And once we've committed to that, we're, we're done. Sometimes we'll say things like, I'll use heroics if you do. Mm-hmm. And you just get this thing. And this is so that we know how we're going to play the phase. Because if no one's using heroics, we just skip it. If I'm the only one using heroics, I just say Aemir, Theoden, Gambling, Heroic Combats. Done. 
But if we're doing it, we have to go through this new game where we basically say, okay, person without priority declares a heroic. They point to a hero, say the hero, say the type of heroic. Then the next person alternates. And then at the end of it, once you conclude it, if you pass, you can no longer cause any call anymore. So that then the other person can just say, I'll do then heroic combat, heroic combat, heroic combat. Then you roll off. The, the person who wins that roll off, so this is the good evil roll off, gets to choose the ore for their first model. So they nominate, they put like a die next to them, say, this is number one. And then the other person says, okay, this is number two. And then you say number three and you alternate until you've got an order. Then you resolve each action in turn. So first person calls a heroic move. They resolve that. The next person calls a march and they that just says, okay, when you move, you'll get to use your march. Done. Resolved. Next person calls another move. So they move that. Next person calls a move. Whatever. So that, that's how you resolve them. Some of them are literally just increased to movement. So like the march, we use that as there. Matt, are we correct? Okay, there is one slight difference to that. The nominating of the heroes and specifying which heroic actions occurs before the roll-off. Before the roll-off. Okay, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what he said. Yes. It was? Yeah. No, that, that is what I said. Perfect. So, so I say Amy is going to call a heroic march. I say I'll call heroic move with, I uh, know, Azog. And then I say, ooh, that's not good. I'll call a heroic move then with gambling. In that case, Grishnak will call a move as well. Okay, then we roll off. Uh, I win the roll-off because I'm much better at rolling than David is. And I go, ooh, Gamling actually needs to get this move off first. So I'm going to say Gamling goes first. That'll cancel Azog's heroic move, so I'll call mine with Grishnak instead. Okay, my next one is going to be AME's March. I don't expect Azog to be able to move, but he's the only bloke left, so Azog's move goes forth. Okay, so then Gamling, we move him. He calls with me during his move. So he moves first. Um, during his move, so at, at, when he's activated, he calls with me. All models within six inches either move with him, finish with him, or they don't move at all. So he's resolved. David, yours? Grishnak and his lot. He calls his move. Off they go. Same as some. Um, mm-hmm. Amir's march goes. And then, unfortunately, Azog's been engaged by gambling, so he doesn't get so, to move so at all. So that's it. He burns his point of might and just stands there. Perfect. That's 100% accurate. Brilliant. Finally, we have our quick thoughts segment where we're going to think very quickly. Once again, we have Matt and David. Matt's topic is going to be on gaming locations. He prefers gaming at the store. David prefers gaming at the club. And I, of course, prefer gaming at home, or so I've told them. So, Matt, your time starts now. Here we go. All right. Gaming stores. The uh, beauty of them is you can rock up and anyone can be there. Your favorite opponent, someone brand new to the hobby. This means you could have a fantastic tactical game or a simple win. Either way, great success. Games are easy to organize. Just send a post out on your local Facebook group 
or forum and you'll have everyone clamoring for a battle with you. Now, some would say the terrain at gaming stores is maybe not so great. And to that I say, I've played great games on a kitchen table with a dragon flying around the salt and pepper shakers. Store terrain is perfectly acceptable. Store owners, once you get to know them, they're great people willing to try and help with the rules, even if they don't actually know anything about the game. And in the end, not everyone can get a setup at their home or maybe find a club in their vicinity. So you always know your local gaming store is going to be there for you when you need it. Not everyone has a gaming store around, but everyone has a home. So your home should be your gaming haven. This is where you go to play. This is where you go to things. You've got all your stuff. I forgot my AMN. No, you didn't. It's at your home. It's here. I forgot my train. No, you didn't. It's in your garage. You set up the tables. You can stay as late as you want. You can go all night if you wish. Mm -hmm. You can drink what you want. You can say what you want, as long as you don't have a baby in the house. Otherwise, you have to keep it down. But other than that, it is the perfect location. I have been gaming a lot at home, mainly because gaming stores have this weird habit of closing when I want them to be open. Which gaming stores open at 2am? None. And that is pathetic. What a bad marketing scheme. As if gaming franchisees have to close. So gaming at home is the most fantastic place to game, especially if you've got an incredibly big home, like a mansion like I do. Okay, you want to play, you want a war game, you need an opponent. You need to be where the opponents are. That means a gaming club. That means a time, a place, a date where the opponents will be in mass. You go there you're fairly sure you can get a game in. Of course, sometimes, you know, people don't show up, and that's a real pain, but get better friends if that's happening to you. So, go where the opponents are. Generally, most most clubs have terrain. They have salt and pepper shakers. They have whatever it is you need to play on. Gaming clubs, be there. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That's all for us today on The Green Dragon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and do remember that the traps will win you some games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on the Green Dragon Podcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.